You're listening to Twitch Asylum Video Game Radio. Welcome to Twitch Asylum episode 18. We're back after, well, about a month. Better than last time. Better than last time. <laughs> we're, yeah, we're, we're keeping it real, keeping it semi um, within the year. Every Quite so monthly. often. That's right. All right. <laughs> so actually, we had a lot of downloads from the last show. All right. So a lot of new listeners, too. And uh, thanks to all the people who signed up for the forums. We talked about that last time. Yeah, we got some new people on the forums. It's great to see. And of course, last time we had a contest. What was a contest, Tom? To uh, get signed postcards from the High Score movie. That's right, and we have the winners, and the winners should have received an email by now, so we need to get your address so we can send the postcard to you. You'd please respond to that. But who are the winners, Tom? Uh, the winners are Alan Pinion, Jason Kelly, who's Achilles on the forum, Lance, who's ZP on the forum, uh, Tyson Bernard, who's Zelot, or Brass Monkey, and Jason Horley, who, who is Whore Product on the... Well, why, <laughs> does, why does Tyson have two uh, logins? I don't know. What's up with that? Uh, his, his Xbox 360 is Z-Lot now. Did he sell uh, it? Oh. He didn't try and like win twice. No, twice. no, no. He had a... He switched his gamer tag or something. All right. A lot of shenanigans going on apparently with, with that Bernard character. Sh- mm-hmm. So thanks again to William Carlton for appearing on our show last time and for signing the postcards. And uh, he is going for the Missile Command World Record on March 20th, so uh, wish him luck. Hopefully he'll get it, and if he does, I'm sure he'll come back on the show and tell us about it. That'd be great. Yeah, and we've got another giveaway that we're going to do this time. What is it, Chris? Uh, This time it's going to be giving away a DVD of The King of Kong. Uh, So if you guys want to win that, it's a brand new sealed copy. Just sign up to our forums, and within the podcast form, there'll be a sticky thread, and all you have to do is reply to it. And you'll be entered to win that DVD. So, Chris, what are we going to talk about this time? Well, as we talked about in the last episode, we're going to try some new things with some of our upcoming episodes. And what we're trying this episode is to review a single classic game. And that particular game is The Seven Cities of Gold. And what we wanted to do, a lot of the retro respect sections we've done in the past, we focused on a single company or a single console, and we really didn't have a lot of time to focus on any of the games. So with this particular segment, it's all about the game and, you know, the companies surrounding that game. So uh, it, should, it should be a really interesting segment. And in the uh, discussion segment, we're talking about media versus uh, publishers and, and kind of what, what does that mean, Tom? Well, we're going to look at the perspectives you might have as a publisher looking at how games are reviewed versus looking at it as a reviewer and what kind of reviews you might want to write about a game. All right, it's going to be a long show. Onward and upward, folks. Playing. What are you playing, Dave? Oh, me again. I'm always first. That's right. All right. Well, uh, 
I've been playing, I, tell, I gotta tell you, I've been playing a lot of Magic the Gathering, the PC game, the PC online version. I haven't been playing it online, but it's, I was, uh, a couple nights ago, I was up till 2 a.m. And what's that like? What's the Magic the Gathering PC well, game? Well, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a computer version of the uh, table board game. And actually, you know what got me into this is playing the um, the Eye of Judgment game. On the PS3. Seeing how bad it was, or yeah, basically, I said, "Oh, <laughs> it's kind of like Magic the Gathering." Well, why don't I try Magic the Gathering again? And so, are I, you are you playing against other people or against no, the AI? No, I'm not social. Playing against the AI. Getting against AI, and it's it's doing a good job of kicking my butt. But it's and I find it it's very addictive. But I don't know. It's it's like a it's an older PC game, not retro. Someday it will be retro. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I still need to play it. I have judgment, though. I want to give that a shot. You should give it a shot. Yeah, but I don't see why you would play it after all the stellar reviews you've heard from the people <laughs> who have played it. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but anyway, and, uh, and and then other than that, um, I uh, have acquired an old Commodore sixty four. A all Commodore right. sixty four. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and I, I, Chris and I actually did that together. No, that's not right, Chris. <laughs> I'm confused. Chris did turn me onto a Craigslist posting where I, right. I found the Craigslist, the Commodore 64. And is this another one of those spooky Craigslist stories where you almost get beat up and robbed? Well, I'm telling you, I'm I'm a little scared of that happening again. <laughs> but this actually, this one was another weird story because uh, Chris turned me on a long time ago. Chris turned me on to a uh, Apple II that was on Craigslist for like twenty bucks or something like that with a monitor, great deal. Go down, meet this guy in a parking lot. Well, so he turns me on to this Commodore 64. I go down the same parking not lot. The guy. <laughs> same parking lot, same guy. Yeah, it's the same guy. Same guy. So same guy, what yeah. are the odds of that? I don't know. He's he, he one one year he was getting rid of his Apple II, and then he had, next year he is sixty four, and so I don't know. But there was no power supply, Dave. But I know he was at least didn't kill me. Yeah. He was threatened to kill me. Yeah, no power uh, supply. Yeah, no power supply. Uh, it was basically it had a lot of games, a lot of um, a lot, at least a lot of discs. Some um, tapes even had tape drive. Yeah, tape drive. We tried to get to work at work and made a horrible noise. <laughs> it was really loud, and everybody's like, "What? What the hell is that noise?" Um, and it would start up on its own. Right. Yeah. It, was like it would just turn drive. on on its own. It's good. <laughs> That's but cool. there was no power was supply, haunted. so we looked on Craigslist. We found a guy in uh, where was it? It was Longview, Washington. Longview, Washington, which is like an hour drive, maybe. Yeah. Like and that. Uh, he had a bunch of stuff. He had like a whole bunch of like twelve Apple II unopened games. Right. Sealed games. Um, stuff a like bunch that. of power supplies for the Commodore. Oh, that sounds pretty good. And we, we look through it and go, that looks like a pretty good list. And he's what's an offer, right? Yeah. So I go, Chris goes, well, how much how much you want to offer for this? And I say, I don't know. Looks like you probably sell most of that for for a good price, fifty bucks. I, I I voted for twenty five, but whatever. We probably should have got twenty. I said, well, it was fifty bucks. I'll pay for it. And then uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what I, what happens? I well, we, he says we, we win. He says, "Yeah, we'll sell it to you." Yeah, but we have to drive up to to Longview, and I'm not that interested anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whatever. Maybe we should have bid lower. Maybe I'm getting screwed again. Yeah. As so, Chris makes me a deal. He says, "If if if I go up with him, he'll give me a Commodore power supply." Right. So. So we drove up there together. We got up at like uh, 5 a.m. or something like that, yeah, 6 a.m., yeah. and drove up there before work, uh, picked yeah. up this whole box of stuff, brought it back. There was like four Commodore power supplies. Only one of them worked, uh, you know, so it wasn't a very good yeah, deal. Yeah, one of them worked. But at least one worked. That's right. And uh, there's a whole bunch of TI power supplies. Yeah, if anybody like out there wants TI power supplies or any <laughs> kind of TI cables, I got a ton of them with nothing to do with it. Now, them. if I had a TI computer, because that's what I grew up with. That was my computer yeah. when I was a kid. I'd love to get that going again. Well, I got power supplies for yeah, it. Yeah, thanks. All right. That's great. <laughs> so what have you been playing on your Commodore? Uh, well, um, one of my favorite games of all time is uh, Mule by uh, Dan Button. Yep. 
who uh, also did Seven Cities of Gold. Which Gold, we're talking about tonight. Which, were, which is topical. Uh, really great game. Um, it's voted uh, like best game of all time in a lot of... Uh, is that true? I, I think it's like best strategy game. Best strategy of all game. It's like very. That. It's um. It's how do I describe it? It's a strategy game. Yeah, you, but it's more like um. It's about like auctioning and it's stuff about, like that. It's about yeah. economics. You're, you're, economics. Uh, exactly. Four, the the greatest thing about it is that four human players can play against each other on one computer. So it's kind of a, it always was a a party game for me in college. Right. Um, and you land on a planet. You're mining, mining things, uh, growing food, uh, producing energy, and it, all these uh, commodities interrelate with each other. And you can control the market. It's, it's, a, it's a really cool game. It's actually a pretty cool game. Yep. And I finally got Chris to play it. Yeah, we played it today, and I got my butt kicked. Yeah, which yeah. is not surprising. No, but did, now you look pretty bored during while we were playing, Chris. Do you think <clears> it was? Was it, you said it was a good game, but no, no, I wasn't bored. I wasn't bored at all. It's just that I feel kind of weird playing at work. You know, yeah. like if, if we were here playing, it'd be something else. But like when I'm at work, I feel like Meh, I should probably. You guys just... are playing Mule at work? Yeah, for an hour. You felt guilty about it. I felt guilty. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know. I'm just weird like that. But anyway, so yeah. Anyway, we Fair played. Enough. It was fun. I want to play again. Um, but uh, it'll maybe, never all happen. I never get anyone to play with me, dude. I'll play. I'll play with you. I'm gonna beat you. I mean, I'm kind of pissed now that I came in last place in the whole game. But anyway, yeah, so. anyway, yeah. So that was that's pretty much the And I have to say, say so I can get you to uh, commit to this. Is while we were on our trip to Longview, we talked about doing some Xbox programming. That's right. Yeah, we're gonna produce uh, an XNA. What XNA dot net. Yeah, we're gonna produce an XNA game. That's our goal. Yeah. And uh, I don't There's, know. We, I don't want to reveal the yeah, game well, that we're gonna, gonna do yet. But um, but it'll be pretty it's, cool. So. It's probably a pipe dream right now. Whatever, we'll find the yeah. time to do it. It'll be like pong, but with only like one paddle. It'll be something like yeah. that. that's right. The one <laughs> retro, paddle pong retro taste to it. Yeah, yeah. that's right. It, it, something like that. All right. So Tom, what are you playing? Well, I'm playing. I've been playing Oblivion. Dave, yeah, yeah, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tom. So what are you playing? Been playing Oblivion on the 360. Now, those of you who have listened to our podcast for a while might recall that I complained a lot about Oblivion in the past, about how it was buggy, it crashed on me, it corrupted my save games, and I gave up on it. Pretty much sucked. But I kept hearing about it from people. Month after month, I would hear about it from people like, oh, you got to play Oblivion. And I would tell them, but it crashes all the time. It, it totally screwed me over. And they would say, well, play it Is on the PC. Is that with your old Xbox? Yeah. Oh, okay. And they would say, well, try it on the PC. And I'd be like, well, I don't, I don't really want to play it on the PC. And eventually I decided to get a new copy of it with my new Xbox 360 <laughs> and give it another try. And I found that actually now we, with what patches they put out, I haven't had any crashing issues. Um, it's worked fine. I have found one or two minor bugs, but they don't interfere with gameplay. And it's a really pretty fun game. And um, it's really a lot different from most RPGs. And in fact, what I found that's kind of funny about it is that the habits and expectations I brought from having played a lot of other RPGs actually kind of led me down the wrong path with Oblivion in many respects. Because you kind of have certain assumptions of how an RPG is going to work. Like, one of the things that I found was, I assumed, you know, if, if a fight was tough, I'd just go away, do something else, level up a bunch, and then come back, and then I'd be able to easily win. But that's not really how Oblivion works. When you level up, the enemies level up too. So it's not like you can just level up by killing rats over and over until you're super mega awesome and then come back and right. win every battle. It's pretty much a game where you have to think through your strategy and how you're going to approach it and get the right skills and get the right equipment. And just leveling up doesn't really make it that much easier. In fact, sometimes it doesn't make it easier at all to level up. <laughs> sometimes it just makes the enemies even tougher. So that's one thing. And there's, lots, there's a lot of things like that where... You know, you got to approach it as a whole new game and not think that the strategies you have from some other RPG are going to work there. 
Did I? Uh, I don't know if I ever mentioned this. Is probably during our break, but I got my father an Xbox 360. I tell you that. No. So yeah, I got my dad an Xbox 360. My mom and I went together and bought him one. And uh, he's he's always been kind of a PC gamer. And he is the type of person who plays one game and then just plays it for like ever. <laughs> he like played Diablo. I, I don't uh-huh. know he's, how many hours he's logged, but he's finished it many many times. And uh, the game we got him was Oblivion. And he played it nonstop. I think he's 300 hours. Wow. He's played Oblivion. He's finished it multiple times. He's just totally into that That's game. That's cool. Yeah. I'm about 50 hours, 50 some hours yeah. into it now. Does it yeah. keep track of your hours? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it keeps okay. track of your hours. That's kind of so, yeah. sad. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> he, like I, I guess say, it, after a while, I guess that's probably discouraging. Like, you look at this huge three-digit number of no, hours. And- <laughs> I, I mean, that's the thing. Like, he'll play the same game, like, forever. Like, he, he would be happy playing it for several years in a row. I mean, that's kind of the way he plays. But he moved on now, finally, and we got him uh, Mass Effect. So he's been playing that Oh, now, yeah, so. great game. Yep. Um, I've also been playing Burnout Paradise on the 360, which I was sort of surprised. I got it from Gamefly, and it's much better than the online demo made it seem like it would be. When I played the, the downloadable demo, I wasn't that impressed with the game. You couldn't do all that much in the demo, it seemed like. And the real game is a lot of fun. It's still the kind of pure adrenaline rush, you know, game that's all about speed and, and action. And it's not like a deep game, but it's, right. it's pretty fun. And the crashes look incredible and the, the roads look incredible. I've also rented from Gamefly the Orange Box because Chris Finally. recommended it. And Chris last time was telling us all that we got to play Portal. So That's I, right. you got to play Portal. So I played Portal, and Chris was right. It's a great game. It's really fun. I, I played yeah, it. I, I was through. one of the few people who said Portal was a good game. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you stood out from the crowd. That's right. you know, got to take a stand sometime. The interesting thing to me about Portal is when I've read other people's comments about it, they tend to focus on the innovative gameplay of like being able to walk through this hole in the wall. And that is kind of cool. That is innovative to walk through the hole in a wall. It is innovative, in a way. <laughs> but to me, what was cool about Portal was not so much that. I mean, that was nice and everything, but what I loved about Portal was the writing and the voiceovers. Right. yeah, exactly. And the, the art direction and the way things looked and the cleverness of it. And it, Portal, I have to say, has the most awesome closing credit sequence that I've yep. ever seen in a That's game. Absolutely it right, is yeah. so worth it to play through the end just to see the closing credit sequence. Also, Half-Life 2, haven't gotten all that far, but since I've got the orange box, I've started on that again. Yeah. What do you think of that? Um, it's fun, but it's not, it's not my favorite type of game. Really? So I mean, how would you compare... I know you have it coming up next, Call of Duty 4. How do you compare Half-Life 2 to Call of Duty 4? Boy, that's hard to say. Like, Call of Duty 4 is... Well, they're both kind of linear. Right. They're both kind of, you know, this, this shooter that, that drags you through certain levels. Or not drags you through, but, but you're sort of forced to go a certain right. path. Go through certain levels. I, I would say, don't you think, though, that Half-Life 2 is a bit more open? Like, it is more open, and there's a bit, there's more that you can, there's more choices you can make. Right, exactly. Like. There's it, also puzzles. Like, there's puzzle yeah. aspects to it and stuff like that. Um, Call of Duty 4, I liked. I finished it r- rather quickly on the normal difficulty, and I didn't feel compelled to play it again. Right. Um, I kind of wanted to see, I wanted to get through it, see how the story turned out. Um, I thought the real world, present day environments were, were very cool. Um, I've, I thought the stuff where you could be um, in the in the aerial gunship and firing down onto the ground yep. was very cool. I thought there were things about it that were very uh, sort of real world disturbing in terms of thinking about whether that right. could happen. But it's not a game that I'm going to remember for a long time and you know want to play time and time again. Um, and then finally, um, Super Mario Galaxy on the Wii. I think Chris, you're going to probably talk yeah, about this because you've been playing it too. But uh, it's a very fun game. All right, Woody, what have you been playing? Uh, I've been spending a lot of time downloading demos off Xbox Live. Nice. Um, 
I got, of course, I got Geometry Wars. Um, oh, closing fast on your guys' score. I'm still down by about an order of magnitude. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like, how close know, are closing you? Closing fast. And I, <laughs> it's possible. It's, it's geometric progression. You know, it'll, it'll be there. It'll be there soon. But yeah, I, I don't think I've broken two hundred thousand yet. Mm. Um, but I've been reading about like the recommend strategies about That's finding right, a yeah. spot like the equidistant like from the or, monitor. Yeah. Okay. Not, not dying. That was the first one I took a while to figure out. But um, <laughs> so anyway, having a lot of fun with that. Uh, I've also been looking for. I'm trying to find a next gen racing game that I enjoy. And the problem is I've been downloading all these demos. Yeah. Um, but the thing I found is uh, my racing games, I like to just get them and have them drop me into races and just race. And I'm finding so many of these, they want to be, they want to have uh, RPG elements. They want you to like, you take damage to your car between races and then you got to go to the shop and spend money. And customize earn. your settings. Yeah, yeah, right. exactly. PGR? Have you put try PGR? Uh, well, that's what I was going to say. Of all the racing games, PGR seems the best yeah. so far. Um, I just always like the, the mechanics of the old burnout. Project right. Gotham Racing, it's the, the driving style. It's much more realistic. I always like the the kind of looser, faster yep. play. But yes, of the next gen games, Project Gotham Racing seems to be the best so far. I've Woody, have you tried Dirt on the 360? It's an off road racing game, and is yeah, that ATV versus MX? No, no, no. It's no, just, no, no, it's no, just no. called it's, Dirt. It's, I have not. And yeah, you, uh, you got to try that one. That's that's one that gets you right into the action. Pretty okay, yeah, definitely. And, okay. You know, not a lot of not a lot of uh, faffing about. Yeah, there's no <laughs> faffing in that game. You're straight into the action on that one. <laughs> um... So yeah, the project I'll have to try Dirt. The project Gotham Racing was good. Um, also, I kind of liked MX versus ATV. I don't know that I'd really enjoy buying the whole thing, but I did. The, the demo was fun, at least for a little bit, as a as an alternative to do the jumps and yeah. Like, I rented the dirt that tracks. and I thought it was I thought it was okay, but it was so similar to the previous games in that series that I felt like I'd already played it. Ah, uh, okay, and I've never played any in the series. <laughs> but so, if you so haven't that was played fun. that series, it's, yes. I think it's pretty fun. Yeah, and the other thing I'm looking for is I'm trying to find a good mech game. Um, one of the reasons I got the 360 is... there is, such a thing as a good mech game? I, well, Have that's what I'm wondering. I, 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 I don't know if they had that demo. I, I thought yeah. I downloaded all the demos, but I'll have to yeah, try There's that. one called Chrome Hounds, but it was primarily a multiplayer game. And I don't know if anybody's playing it anymore. But it was uh, supposed to be pretty decent at the time. I've always found that, to me, like mech games just seem like first-person shooters where you have to walk really, really slow. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess I'm still trying to recapture my youth. When I was young, I loved the Battletech games that were like the right. first-person. The, the board games? or the. Uh, I have, uh, played the board game, too, but my favorite were the computer ones, where you're yeah, actually in yeah. the cockpit. And they eventually made a Battletech game where it became like a strategy thing. Right, where yeah. you, and yeah. that wasn't so much it, but the ones where you were actually in the cockpit, I don't know, at the time when those came out, I loved them. They were great, so I've always been looking for that again. And I always missed. I I, I always regretted that I didn't have a three six uh, an, an original Xbox at the time when they came out with that. Um, yeah, Capcom came out with yeah. that game. Yeah, those are impressive. I, I can't remember the what it was called. A ball got one of those. Yeah, 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 and it had the 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 full like, it the, had, like the, the special c- controller. Yeah, the, and yeah. where the controller costs more than the uh, console. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I always thought that was neat and would have wanted to have one of those even just for the 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 fun of it. Um, I don't I don't even know how good the game was, but that would have just been neat to play with that console by itself. Yeah. So anyway, that's what I've been looking for downloading those. Um, you might also try. Explain. Well, I would say Chrome Hounds. Give that a shot, and also. It's not really a mech game, but Lost Planet has some mech type aspects. In That's it. true. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. This, uh, we, I played a little Lost Planet before it came out yeah. on the demo. Yeah, and that was fun. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's what I've been doing. So what about you, Chris? All right. So uh, last show, I kind of said that um, I wasn't playing many Nintendo games, and I was only playing my PSPN, my, not my DS, and I felt kind of bad. So I said, well, I'm going to play some DS and Wii games this time and report on those. So 
the new Super Mario Brothers. That's the first game I bought when I got my Nintendo DS Lite. And I got quite a ways into it and just kind of paused and didn't play it. So uh, I picked that back up and I finished it. And actually, that's a really, really good game. Have you played that, Tom? Yeah, I have. Do you finish it, Tom? No, I haven't finished it. Oh, yeah, I'm finishing it. What I found is that it's actually not a very long game. Mm-hmm. It didn't. It basically took me a weekend to finish it. Uh, I even went to the two worlds that you have to be mini Mario to get into. Did you know about that, Tom? No. Okay, well, there you go. And uh, <laughs> it's a great game, but it, it seemed too short. But what I really liked about this game is it reminded me a lot of Super Mario World, which is really my favorite Mario game. Right. So I would recommend this to anybody who likes the old Marios. It's a great game to just kind of pick up and play, you know. And the DS makes that really nice to play on the on on the go. And the levels aren't very long, so you can finish them fairly quickly. I also started playing Legend of Zelda: The Phantom Hourglass on the on the DS. Have you, any of you guys played that? No. All right, so I, that's a really good game as well. Uh, it's kind of in the Wind Waker art style, so I don't know if, if you guys know what that is, but it's more of a cartoony. More cartoony, cartoony. Yeah. And the nice thing about it is it uses stylus controls for everything. So you don't use the D-pad, you don't use anything else. Everything's stylus. Everything is stylus-based. The combat, and what's nice is like when you go to do your boomerang, you draw where you want your boomerang to go, stuff like that. <laughs> nice. It's really fun. There are somewhat repetitive aspects in some of the dungeons, like you have to go back to the same dungeons, and some of the t- dungeons are timed. And I'm not a big fan of time things, especially in adventure games. But, you know, it's a good game. I think you should definitely give it a shot, Tom. I think you'd really enjoy it. On the Wii, uh, like Tom mentioned, I, I've been playing Super Mario Galaxy. I'm about 40 stars in. And I think the game is really good. Uh, everybody obviously knows probably what it is now. It's 3D Mario. You've got these little planetoids that you jump between. They're kind of right. bite-sized levels. It's, it's very easy to pick up and do a star or two, you know, in a single It reminded scene. me a lot of the things I liked about Super Mario 64. Exactly. But in kind of a new realm with new yeah. type of controller setup. So what I've heard, of, you know, a lot of people named Super Mario Galaxy Game of the, game of the Year. They had as their game in there, and they said there's just a ton of variety in the game. And there is a ton of variety variety in the game. How many stars are you in, Tom? Uh, probably around 20, I think. 20, okay. So the one thing I don't like about the game is that a lot of the planets, well, it's like not a lot, but some of them, they use the Wii controls, and it seems kind of gimmicky to me. Well, there's like that one where you ride on the back of a man exactly. through the water yep. course. And- but have you gone to the one where you have the little bubbles and you blow them around by blowing up? You probably haven't done I don't think so. There's no. a bunch of different levels that, to me, feel like mini-games. So it's like a mini-games collection inside Super Mario Galaxy and to me that was kind of a turn off for me maybe that's just because I'm a classic Mario 64 fan or I'm a classic Mario fan I don't need those kind of gimmicks in my game and it's almost like they put them in just to take advantage of the Wii uh, controls and I guess I just don't need it in my Mario game I know (laughs) that's just me but I, I found it kind of distracting the 3D portions are great. You like I, your Mario game pure. I like pure Mario. I'm sorry. I don't need mini games in my Mario. So why'd right. you even spend all that money on that Wii controller? That's, that's a really good question, Dave. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's cool. Like, you know, I enjoy it for certain games. Like, I enjoy Wii Sports when I have friends over. I just, a Mario game to me is sort of a hardcore game. And I don't need mini games in it, I guess is what I'm saying. You know, some of them actually fit. Other ones, to me, feel tacked on. And that's just my opinion. All right, fair but, enough. It's a fun game. But I just wish they would stick to the 3D exploring and Mario jumping, you know, and just kind of avoid all the, the, you know, the minigames. But anyway, Call of Duty 4 Modern Warfare. Tommy mentioned that earlier. Yeah. You, you played on, what do you play it on? What, normal. Uh, normal? Not veteran? No, not okay, veteran. Okay, well, I'm playing on veteran. Because, uh, yeah. 
I want yeah. the achievements. I was, I was impatient to get through the story and see what happened. And Chris is bad like that. Yeah, I, I finished Call of Duty <laughs> 2 on Veteran. It only uh-huh. took me about two years. So I'm, I'm figuring this one I'm going to try to wrap up. Try to do it in like one year, year and a half. Well, it'd be yeah, four year years, and a half. right? Call of Duty 4. Isn't that the way it works? Yeah, yeah I guess so. Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, to me, I, I you know, we talked earlier about playing Half-Life 2. Uh, to me, that's a much more open game. There's puzzles in that. When I went to this game, and also uh, I played, you know, a bunch of PC shooters, including Crisis, which to me is is a very much an open world type of shooter. Right, yeah. I go to a game like this, and to me, it feels like it's on rails. It's like to me, it's not far away from playing House of the Dead or Lethal Enforcers <laughs> in the arcade. You know what I'm talking about, though? Yeah, really? Yeah. I mean, it's like, oh, yeah. oh, this dude's gonna pop up there, ping, ping. Oh, this dude's gonna pop up there, ping, ping. It's like it's to me, it's like laziness i just i'm not enjoying it at all so i don't know i don't so know it will take you four years it probably will take me four years <laughs> but to me it's like it's an on-rail shooter and and the the fact that some of the voices and character models are identical to ones that were in call of duty 2 i'm just kind of surprised that it's gotten so much hype that it's got but i think a lot of that hype has to do with the multiplayer aspect right. of the game think, not the I single so. player yeah so maybe the multiplayer is great. I haven't played it, but as far as the single player goes, to me it's it's a repeat of Call of Duty 2. The people have progressed. There's more of these open world uh, shooter games, and to me this just it's falling behind. It's not keeping up. That's just my opinion. All right. So what else have I been doing? I got a new book. It's called the Encyclopedia of, Encyclopedia of Game Machines, and it's by Game Plan, and it's by Winnie. Forster, is that it? Winnie Forster, I guess? Sure. It's a UK-based book, which is kind of cool because it gives you an international perspective. Yeah. I guess my perspective of video games has always been, you know, what games do we have here in the States? You know, what systems right. do we have? Right. Well, it's what you remember from your childhood. Exactly. Yeah. And this, the cool thing about this book is it covers all these game machines internationally, and it goes from 1972 to 2005. So wow. a lot of these systems I've heard about, like I've, I've heard of the MSX, but what was it? What games are available? This book talks about that. I've heard of the Wonder Swan. What was it? There's pictures of it. It talks about how many games were made for it, how popular it was. There's also a, a computer created by Fujitsu called F- FM Towns. Ah, uh, now I have a history with FM Towns. What is it? Um, it was one of the first, if not the first, home computer to come with a CD-ROM drive. That's right, exactly. And I know about this because I wrote software for it back when I worked at a company called Image Builder. Um, we actually developed for the FM Towns. Wow. Now, was that released in the States, or was that... No. I don't think it was ever released. See, I could be wrong, but I don't think it was ever released in the U.S. See, the reason I it caught my eye is because I play a lot of the old um, scum games on emulators. Uh-huh. And a lot of times, if you look at the scum games, it'll say FM Towns version, talky, meaning it had voice for the FM Towns, because right. it was a CD-based version. And I was like, what the hell is FM Towns? Is it some card you can get or whatever? Well, it was a computer that was created right. by Fujitsu, and it's basically a PC, but they wrote their own operating system. Completely different from DOS or Windows or anything. It was like it was similar to DOS, though. It yeah. felt similar. But it was their own, yeah. apparently. Yeah, it's proprietary. Um, yeah, it was... The big news at the time, though, was it came with a CD-ROM included, and it, it sort of, in a way, it launched the whole CD-ROM multimedia idea. Yeah. Well, it was probably the first one of its type. Yeah. I know. It would have come eventually. Yeah, someone would have... Okay, yeah. yeah. Someone else would have done that eventually, but they were the first to do it and really try to push that idea. Yeah. So I recommend this book. If, you, if you're if you interested in video game history at all or just the kind of consoles that were released or handhelds, this book is great. Uh, again, it's Game Machines by Game Plan. You can check it out. I got it on Amazon. It's definitely worth picking up if you're into classic gaming. 
And then I've been playing this this other new game um, that Amy recommended to me. Um, it's called uh, <laughs> Clean. <laughs> it's called Clean the Garage. So I've been doing. I'm playing that for the last couple weekends. Is this I'm one of those much, live action role playing games? Are you yeah. doing that in veteran level? Yeah, it's, it's very much a kind of virtual reality, or more like reality. More like a real, a really, yeah, very real. Yeah. yeah. So um, I've been cleaning out my garage, all my old computers. I'm organizing and putting into bins. Uh, and Amy was amazed to see how many Commodores I had. So I'm going to be uh, eBay yeah. eBay and a lot of those. How, how many Commodores did you have? I, know, I have like eight, sixty. And how many uh, power supplies did you have? Uh, quite a few. And yeah, so I don't we think we luck? needed to drive anywhere. I had plenty of that. But anyway, so I'm going to be selling that stuff. Uh, the other nice thing about it is now I have a lot of room in the garage, so I can start to restore some of my arcade games that I have in storage. So in upcoming episodes, I'll be talking about some of the restorations I'm doing and, and the parts that I'm using and who I'm talking to to get parts. So and hopefully that'll pictures be pictures too. And form. pictures, yep, yeah. definitely we'll have pictures in the form. All right. Well, it's on to the next section, which is the discussion. Discussion. the discussion and today we're going to talk about game critics versus game publishers so there were several incidents that occurred during the eight months of our break i guess it was an extended vacation hiatus exactly um long pause (laughs) (laughs) uh, one of those events uh has been widely uh kind of regarded as the gerstmann event do you guys know about this this had to do with GameSpot. GameSpot, yeah, exactly. So, fill in the backstory for those who haven't heard. All right, it. so Jeff, I'm sure everybody probably has heard this, but yeah. um, Jeff Gerstmann, he was the editorial director at GameSpot, and he was asked to do the review for the video game uh, Kanan Lynch Dead Men, mm-hmm. and that was actually a game by IDOS. Well, at the same time he was about to review that, I guess IDOS purchased a bunch of advertising on the GameSpot website, um, and they. I don't know if this was intentional or what, but both his video review and the advertising hit at about the same time. Now, in his review, he's pretty harsh. He kind of rips on the game a bit. And I think kind of what pushed it over the line for IDOS, if, if it this did actually occur, is he said, basically, don't buy this game. I don't know if that was a direct quote, yeah, but it end, was something... The end of the video says, don't, I wouldn't buy this game. I wouldn't buy this game, yeah, right? Or, or, or don't you buy shouldn't this buy this game, yeah. or something like that, yeah. anyway. And again, IDOS had purchased all this advertising on the website, and I guess a little while after this video review was posted, uh, Jeff Gerstmann was let go. So a lot of people were upset because they believe that what happened was IDOS, who had purchased all these advertisements for the website, uh, had basically pushed back and said, you know, you put this review up. Gerstmann said, basically, don't buy the game. We want to drop our advertising. And they went ahead and fired him or let him go because of this. Now, whether that's true or not, it's we don't really it's a lot know. a conjecture because you don't really... there's. Why he was let go is unknown. Right. And a lot of people, gamers, were upset, and they actually went and flogged IDOS's website, and you couldn't get to it anymore. All the forums were down. It was kind of a big deal. So, um, And a lot of other reviewers outside of even GameSpot stepped up and said, we don't think this is right. The reason Jeff was fired for giving his opinion in this game, whatever. So that was kind of that was event number one. So event number two, I guess, is, has to do with EGM and 1UP. And so uh, Dan Chu, the editor-in-chief for EGM, wrote an editorial in the February issue of EGM. 
uh, talking about his concerns about companies basically pulling advertising when ma- magazines don't give favorable coverage to the games. And in his editorial, he says, quote, quote, that you will get, quote, little, late, or no coverage of the following products. Mortal Kombat, they didn't like our reviews. Anything from Sony's sports department, ditto. And now <laughs> anything from Ubisoft. It seems our coverage of Assassin's Creed was the last straw. So in case you're wondering why you're seeing so little of these games in our magazine and on our website, now you know. Unquote. So, you so know, apparently the, the game publishers uh, are refusing to advertise... Or no, they're refusing to get early access to the games. I think it's both. Uh, From what I've read, they're not advertising and they won't give early access. And it actually goes a bit farther than that. I heard on a podcast that EGM and 1UP, I guess anybody from Ziff Davis, they're not allowed to go to any of the Ubisoft press events. They've been banned from those as well. So It's kind of nice. Kind of sweet. Kind of Kind of what makes you, uh, you can take up for the side of the publishers, right? Yeah. You you feel bad for them. They should be able to say what they want. Yeah. Right? You mean the reviewers? The reviewers, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Not, not the publishers. I'm sorry. No, we'll get to that. Yeah. All right, so um, the other thing is, and this isn't really an event, but I listen to a lot of gaming podcasts, uh, and one topic, and a lot of the podcasts are done by you know One Up or these other web ma- uh, web zines or even magazines themselves. Portals. Portals, exactly. Uh, people that are in the industry and they review games. One of the common topics they bring up is that, you know, they don't get the respect that other industries get, you know, like movies and maybe books or other other mediums, I guess, that are reviewed. They don't feel like they get that respect. Um, but the thing you got to keep in mind is their podcasts are by, you know, obviously they're going to be done from their perspective. So you're not going to get the perspective of, say, the publisher. So the one thing that we thought would be interesting to discuss is you've heard, you know, all this stuff about how bad, you know, Gersman's firing was and and one up getting banned is horrible but really has anybody looked at it from a publisher's perspective the game publisher the game publisher exactly and i guess we're kind of in a unique position because all the people on this podcast we're all uh developers of software 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 developers and we have our software reviewed you know it's not a video game that gets reviewed obviously but it's a piece of software that gets reviewed so i'm just curious how would you guys feel if you produced a piece of software, had it reviewed, and it got, you know, they basically said, don't buy it after you'd purchased a bunch of advertising in the magazine? Well, certainly I, I would be disappointed. Um, the question is, you know, is there something beyond that? D- did the review seem unfair? Did it seem yeah. like it was biased? Did, the, did it seem like they didn't give it a fair chance? Because it's different to have, you know, a review can mention some of the drawbacks of a, of a piece of software or what they didn't like about it. And I can read that and think, okay, they made some valid points there, and, and maybe even think, yeah, we knew about some of that stuff, but for, for one reason or another, we had to release it that way. And to me, there's something that goes beyond that when they start to get sort of vindictive about it and, and insulting about it, and just say, like, well, this is garbage, these people are idiots. You know, like, if I feel like they didn't give it a fair chance, or if, they, or if they're just being gratuitously insulting, I think that's where I'd really think it had crossed the line. Right, I guess my thing is like, I like Jeff Gersman and I liked his GameSpot reviews, but I kind of think he did cross the line by saying don't buy this game because when I go to like when I read a magazine or I go to a website, I want to get their opinions on the game. But to me, I don't really feel like they should ever say do or don't buy this game because to that to me that's a kind of a personal opinion whether you want to buy it or not. Sure, but that's part of. I mean, you could. But, but that's that's his opinion. Yeah, he's yes. saying he wouldn't buy it. No, he said. So I you, think he said don't, don't buy, buy this game. Okay, but what he's saying is if you trust my judgment, don't buy this game. And yes. and, and if and 
it's his his review. He can do what he wants in it. I mean, to give him to be fair to them, right? Uh, but the but the publishers can't be you know expected to to advertise, right? So if if you'd spent a bunch to advertise and then they said don't buy this software product, I would say pull my advertisement. You would say pull. It. You're not getting any more dollars from me. Exactly. So yeah. you, I mean, <laughs> and, so and that's not that's not cool either because you do want this uh, the wall between the advertising department for the magazine or or podcast or, or but it's whatever. not benefiting you to pay for advertisements right, when right. when the first thing they're going to do is click on the review to see what the, the GameSpot obviously said about it since they're going to that website and they say don't buy it. But as a re- reader, you want to have honest reviews. You want to right. give so you want them to be able to to, to give a game a bad review. I, I mean, if a it. if a site or a magazine always says every game's great, then after a while you're not going to read it because it's not giving you the real information. Right. I'm not saying it should say everything's great. I'm right. saying it should give the opinion. But saying that you should not buy something to me, I, I could I and what Woody said is fine. If you said I I wouldn't personally buy this game, great. But saying, like, don't buy this thing, it mm-hmm. seems kind of weird to me. It's, like, such an absolute, right? You know, and Fair I, enough. It's, I, it is pretty much the final bullet on, or right. final period. Don't do this. Fair enough. Right. I mean, one thing, too, is uh, I actually do write reviews, not of games, not of software, but I write reviews of anime and manga for a website. And I know that, for one thing, I hate to write a bad review that, you know, because I know that people worked hard on that thing. You know, even if I didn't like it, even if, you know, I try to, I try to say to myself, like, do I not like it just because I'm not the target audience? Do I, you know, are there, is there another sort of person who might have liked it? Um, I really hesitate to just come out and say something's just terrible. I mean, I've, I've hardly ever done that because uh, usually I try to talk about, like, what's good and bad about it, describe it, give, you know, people an idea of what there is to like or not like about it. So the other question is, you know, as we mentioned earlier, a lot of times you'll hear that video game journalists say that they don't get the respect they deserve. Now, the question is, do they deserve that respect? You know, <laughs> this the, is the, a good question. That's same, a question you would pose to us. Right, you? exactly. So, um, so uh, I think some uh, game okay. journalists would. Probably. Uh, yeah. Well, one thing that I did prior to this podcast yeah. is I sent you guys a copy. One of the people who always talks about video game journalists not getting respect is Garnet Lee from 1UP. So he runs. He has. He kind of runs the One Up Show. That one podcast. Up yours. One Up Yours podcast. Yes. Great he, name for a podcast. Exactly. And he also, I guess, is now the head of like the editorial review stuff for reviewing of games. Well, I sent you guys a podcast that they did. I guess it was about a year ago where <laughs> yeah. they interviewed Mitch from FASA regarding Shadowrun. And I'm like, this is the guy, Garnet Lee, who says that they deserve more respect. Uh, and to me, this podcast kind of summarizes what I think video game reviews are kind of like, kind of the level they review at. Can you kind of explain, Tom? Yeah, you know, I... Okay, Chris sent me this link. I started listening to this podcast. I started listening to this interview. And, you know, to be fair, I wanted to listen to it all the way through. But I I had a very hard time listening to it all the way through. (laughs) I did. But I had to struggle because it was so embarrassing. It was so... it was just so um, unprofessional. It I mean, rambled they, on. They, it they, went first, on. Go ahead. Well, they basically invited this guest to talk about the game, and then they hardly ever let him talk or finish a sentence or explain what he was trying to say. They just went off on saying all kinds of weird stuff. Profanity. Um, profanity. Abusing, abusing abuse, the guest. Abusive yeah. language. Um, basically just, just rambling about their own opinions and not giving the guest any respect at all, really. 
um, I found it just shocking. I felt like he was being interviewed by Beavis and Butthead. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it was just bizarre. I'm surprised he stayed on. I, yeah. I, I mean, I... Did it, he know what he was getting into? He must have known what he, he was getting into. He must have known, but... He's I mean, really polite and said, no, go ahead, whatever. It, <laughs> it was I'll, very I'll answer that question. Or let I mean, me answer that question. I mean, to, just to quote one thing that I remember, at one point, one of the interviewers said that... He, he says something like, if you mention emergent gameplay, I will pee on you. <laughs> I mean, it's so immature. It's just, it's just. Is that is that the professionalism that demands respect? Now these journalists, you know, they're I mean, all they're yeah. That's, all that's the interesting thing. It's not like this podcast is us, like just a bunch of guys getting together, drinking beer, and talking about video games. Right. This is by the people who do the uh, video game reviews for EGM. Right. These are the so-called these professionals. The, these are right? the professionals. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Talking about peeing on a guy for talking about emergent gameplay. But I mean, to me, that's. There was actually a lot worse that they said about the game in that podcast, but you know there they- was a lot of awful stuff. But the the main thing to me is they invite this guest on the show, and then they don't let him explain himself, and they don't show him any respect it was whatsoever. Horrible. It was almost right. It, it's and- one thing if they were just criticizing his the product at one you know in another show, but it's when you have the guest on, at least treat that person with respect while he's there. And that wasn't what was and, happening. And the thing to be mentioned too is the game wasn't even released at the time they did the interview. So it's not like they're ripping on it saying this game sucks. They're ripping on it before it's even released and they've seen the final product. So. Right. So, so so, I guess for me, this whole situation, it feels a lot like it's similar to the way I see um, whenever there's arguments between, say, celebrities and tabloid press, um, where, yeah, I believe in freedom of speech. I think the tabloid should get to publish what they want. Um, and, and that's an, it seem, you know, an absolute right up to the extremes. But at the same time, they make it really hard to feel sympathy for them um, with some of the tactics they do. And the same thing with the tabloid press, with the celebrities, and the same thing with the editorial reviews of, in the gaming industry. Um, they make it really hard. You know, you want to say, yes, they should be able to publish the reviews they want to publish and say what they want. But at the same time, it, they're spewing filth, and it makes it really hard to sympathize with them. Right. It's, well, it's here's a, the thing, too. It's like, okay, they have the right to do that and to have the kind of tone that they want to have and to try to reach the kind of audience that they're looking for. I mean, there's all kinds of journalism out there. There's, you know, going on, you know, uh, Howard Stern is going to be different than going on NPR. And, and everyone knows that. But, but by the same token, you don't have to go on Howard Stern if you don't want to, right? Right. So... Um, and you could argue that, that that's the audience who buys their magazine. That's who they're... Exactly. Yeah, but yeah. here the thing is, uh, the thing that kind of irritates me is that they get mad at the publishers for not... You know, they're going to drop advertisements. They're going to drop doing these things. Well, I mean, they're responding to probably what they perceive as the maturity of that particular publication. Right. If you look at somebody yeah. like EGM, you know, in addition to that podcast, which is somewhat related because one up and EGM are kind of one and the same, every month in EGM they have the pile of shame, which is represented by a, a flaming kind of like sm- uh, steaming, turd. steaming turd next to the game <laughs> that receives the pile of shame. Now, I mean, if I'm a game publisher, do I want to put my game in there and then get the pile of shame? Is that is that professional? Do I is that something <laughs> I consider like, oh well, we got the pile of shame this month, everybody, good job, you know? I mean. Nobody and, you know, sets out to write a crappy game. Yeah, and it's 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 not that uh, that fair reviews aren't aren't welcome or right. shouldn't should be welcome, but right. I mean, it's also you shouldn't expect to get advertising dollars. Yeah, I just feel like they, that the magazines yeah. that 
aren't that mature still expect publishers to advertise with them because they're a video game magazine. And I don't think they should expect that. I mean, They're keeping it real, man. Yeah, the, whatever. <laughs> they say that we're doing hard-nosed reviews. Well, you're doing hard-nosed reviews, and maybe you're writing to the audience that reads your magazine, but the publisher is well within their right to say, this is not the target that we... This is not how we want to see our product represented. This is not the maturity level that we think our audience is. And what I think has happened in video games is... If you think about video games and the way people perceive them, sure, some people still perceive video games as played by kids, right? Little kids with the Atari 2600. But the maturity level of video games has raised over the years. To me, and this is not all magazines. I know there's, you know, Play Magazine and other magazines are a higher maturity level. But I would say the majority of magazines haven't raised the maturity level of their magazine. You know, so you're seeing a lot of these reviews written to kind of a, a younger audience even though the games are targeted 12 year olds yeah 12 year olds even though the games are targeted at a mature audience so i think the publishers are kind of waking up and going you know hey if they're going to treat it like this you know and they're going to have those kind of reviews that's not something we want to be in, a part of i don't know no offense to any 12 year old listeners no we, audience. we love 12 year you, you guys listeners. are all mature but you know, the average 12 we all used to be 12 years old that's one other thing too is if people complain about not getting invited to industry events too yeah. like you got to realize that those events are put on by a company. Right. They're paying for it, usually. It's you know, not it, your right. It's up to them to invite who they want to invite. Right. It, it's not like everyone has a right to be invited right. to those it, things. Any more than I have a right to be invited to everybody's party. But the they world. feel it's kind yeah. of like, just you know, it should be bestowed upon them because they're a video game writer. But it's like, hey, you know, like, if... If they don't like your writing style, you're keeping it real, man. But that doesn't mean they have to invite you. You know, they can do whatever they want. So I, yeah. I, I kind of, I don't like Gersman getting fired. I like Gersman. I, I feel like that was kind of a weird incident, and it's probably why it blew up so much because he kind of did have respect as a reviewer, mm-hmm. and he's not kind of the the one up yours approach of you know he. I've never seen him do he's that. Not pee on anyone, right? He's not going <laughs> to pee on anyone. So I think that's why a lot of people took exception to it. But again, I do understand where publishers are coming from. I guess. Well, but here's my thing. I uh, you know, publishers have the absolute right to choose who they advertise or with or whatever. But at the same time, any reviewer or any company that gave in to those publisher tactics, yep. I have no respect for. Exactly. Yeah. So any anyone <laughs> worth their salt, any of those any of those companies that deserve respect, will stand up and say, I don't care if the publisher stop. You know, advertising right. with us, we're yeah. still going to have editorial freedom. But at the same time, if they do that, maybe their business goes under. Right. Does that mean there's no room for that business model anymore? Is it all going to be game reviews by bloggers right. and such? But and but but we don't know the real reason that they dropped no. advertising. No, they're, we don't. I mean, we're hearing the perspective of the right. video game journalists, yeah. and, and they're they're saying, oh, it's because we didn't give it a fair review. Maybe it's because they write to a maturity level that they don't agree with. Maybe it's because they don't like their podcast and the way they treat guests. Maybe it was a final straw. Yeah, there it, could be so many things that you're not seeing, you know. And so I think it's hard to say it's, well, we gave a bad score. I, I personally don't know that the score, I mean, it probably does bother them quite a bit. But I think a lot of times it's, if they look at a review, right, say we spent three years writing a product, it's right? The tone of the review. And then, you, and then you look at a re- which <laughs> yeah. we have, right? And yeah. then you look at a review and it's it looks like the person didn't spend any time, you know, they yeah. spent more time coming up with witty comments to say about your game to look smart instead of, you know, actually providing facts to back up their statement. It's not that they didn't like the product, it's that they were sarcastic while doing it. Exactly. Yeah. So, okay, here's a, here's a quick quote from the March 2008 issue of EGM. 
And I was just looking for things that have this kind of tone where they're sort of going beyond just saying a rating. And in here on page 92, it says, The Least Wanted or Surprising Sequel Award. And this is a quote. Fusion Frenzy 2, thanks a lot, asses. Now I can catch up on my unhappiness. <laughs> yeah, so if you were a person that, I mean, I'm not saying so, F- Fusion Frenzy 2 is a great game. I know, Tom, it was one of your Games of the Year nominees, <laughs> which is no, probably no, why you chose that quote. But <laughs> but, uh, but again, if I was somebody involved in that project, I'm not sure that I would, you know, it's like, yeah, tell me what's wrong with the game, but you don't have to be such, you know, you have to be so cocky about it. Like, I just don't like the attitude, you know? Yeah. So, anyway. So what, what do you guys think can be, be done to fix this, or can it be fixed, or do you think the well, video I, game industry will mature I over time? market forces are going to have to do whatever they do. It really depends. I mean, magazine publishers clearly believe that their audience, their their marketers, are buying that attitude. That's the sassy attitude of right. whatever the game, the video gaming generation. But I would hope it's not. they're not correct. You know what's interesting, too, is that I received a bunch of emails even before we're going to do this topic we have quite a few listeners that are in the uk which is awesome by the way thanks for listening but uh (laughs) but they mentioned several uk-based magazines and they said that the maturity level of their magazines is way higher than the maturity level i would completely believe that because a few times i've gone and bought import um uk xbox 360 magazine yeah stuff like that and and they're it's a night and day difference like they're absolutely writing to a, a higher uh, age, probably a higher um, reading comprehension reading, level. Yeah, I was gonna, I, I was gonna <laughs> bigger words. I was gonna say I was gonna say literacy almost. It's like um, the their style of writing is more sophisticated. It has more sophisticated uh, humor to it. It's not you know saying thanks a lot asses or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know it, it, it's a it's definitely a more mature thing. So I wonder if. Some of what we're talking about here and what we're seeing here is an American thing, right? That is, it might be. is kind of unique to the United States, and and I'd be interested to hear on the forums from some of our European listeners is like, do you are you experiencing that kind of thing in Europe? I, I would bet it would be a lot less in Europe. Yeah. And now you mentioned magazines that you think do write to a higher maturity level. I mean, we've talked about EGM a lot, basically saying it doesn't, obviously, but what about other magazines? What about, like, a Game Informer or a Play Uh, magazine? I like Play the best. Um, Just personally, that's, you know, my taste, but Play seems to be written a lot of in-depth explanation about the game, you know, what is it about it that makes it good, in-depth interviews with game creators. Um, It doesn't have that sort of flippant juvenile tone of like trying to go out of your way to make fun of something. It it seems like it's more more of an adult-oriented, more sophisticated view of things, and that's what I like about it. Cool. Well, that's a discussion. Uh, If you would please come to the forums, we'd love to talk about it more. I think we could get some really good discussions going on the discussion aka arguments <laughs> arguments flame wars exactly yeah all right so uh, on to the next segment which is tom seven cities of gold no it's the news but good try <laughs> <laughs> time for news you can use 
All right, what's, what's first on the agenda, Chris? I don't know, Tom, what's going on? Well, Phil Harrison has stepped down as president of Sony, leaving for where? Atari? How can that be? Atari? All right, so Phil Harrison, the head of Sony's in-house game studio, one of its longest-serving executives, announced that he's going to resign from the company. They really didn't give a reason, but a lot of people are saying that he might be going to Atari or Infogrames, which is totally weird because we've had news stories in the past that said they're basically going to shut down. So what's going on? Yeah, I wasn't even sure Atari was still around or whether there's going to be imminent like uh, bankruptcy or something or you know, yeah, dissolution of the company. So I guess that's just a rumor right now. So we really don't know if Phil is really leaving for Atari or what's going on. But it seems like this is kind of a big hit for Sony since he's been there since like 1992 or something like that. Yeah, very strange. So very strange. But Kaz Harai, uh, Ridge Racer, is going to be taking over. He's the uh, as the president of Sony Computer in Phil's absence. So, all right. So I don't know. What do you guys think the impact's going to be on Sony? Do you think anything's going to happen? It's going to be status quo. What do you think, Woody? I would call status quo. So what? <laughs> They so can't, you're they calling can't, it for status quo. <laughs> they can't do much worse. They, okay. Oh, so you think Sony's doing bad right now? I think they're actually starting to turn it around simply because of the next news item we're going to talk about. I won't spoil it. But uh, no, I do think I, it seems to be things seem to be swinging their way, but they've been down for well, a I few heard, years. I heard sales of PS3s are up. Yeah, that's what they said last month. But a lot of people are, are saying that's due to the fact that there weren't many 360s. Like mm-hmm. they didn't have enough in the supply chain as well as Wii's. So that's the reason the PS3 outsold it. I don't know if that's true or not. Do people cool. really like go to the store to buy a 360 and there there isn't one, so they buy a PS3 though? Like, is that really how it works? No, I think I mean, the, think the deal is the sales numbers are up, but the reason that the PS3 may have beaten the other two in terms of sales is because people couldn't buy the consoles that they wanted, so maybe they'll wait till this month oh, to I buy or whatever. So the, the overall yeah. sales numbers may have been better, but they're saying that that's because Microsoft. And I don't know why this is. Would you like say, well, our our system's selling really well. We probably shouldn't stock it. I mean, I, I don't. <laughs> so I th- I thought there was uh, some number that the PS3 had made more total sales at a certain point. Is that not true? Is that, I misread that? Was Maybe that, for a certain month. It was yeah, just for a month. Overall sales, no way. Okay. It's nowhere right. near. No, okay. So all right. Whatever. We don't know why Phil Harrison left, but um, that's weird. If I was him, I probably wouldn't have left since it seems like Sony is kind of on an upswing. But whatever. The next news story, this is kind of near and dear to Dave's heart. It's, it is near to my heart. Go my ahead, Dave. Heart. What is it? Uh, HD DVD players are dead. Oh, yeah. dude, come on. I just bought that thing for the 360. Now you can sell it for 50 bucks. <laughs> yeah, that's oh. actually what they're selling now. It's $50. So Toshiba announced that they're stopping making DVD, HD DVD players. What kind of HD DVD player did you have, Dave? I have a Toshiba HD DVD player. <laughs> it's an A- A2. And I got to say, um, I've got to recommend this other podcast that recommended this to me. <laughs> <laughs> htguys.com that's ht is in home theater guys.com my favorite they, they recommended this uh, they, they HD said DVD. get this player if even if it, if hd dvd does not win the format war it'll be a great upscaler and so All i'm right. sticking with that story right. well actually you shouldn't feel too bad yeah. Dave, because something that's interesting is you know when this was announced by toshiba i guess president what how do you pronounce that tom atsutoshi nishida yeah he said you know, we, it was best to make a swift decision, so they decided to go ahead and stop their production of HD DVD. But he wanted to assure the estimated one million customers, including some six hundred thousand in North America, including Dave, yeah, who already bought HD DVD machines, that Toshiba will continue to provide product support for the technology. So, so hey, well, there you it. go. They're going to support that, it. That makes me feel good. It doesn't though, because if you know, if Netflix stops renting them, what am I going to do? Well, and it's funny. Well, you they're going to keep supporting it, Tom. <laughs> 
It's funny you mentioned the upscaling because that's apparently what all the stores. I was reading reports of like Walmart or whoever had the HD DVD to get them off the shelves are all retagging them as, as DVD, DVD upscalers yeah. <laughs> instead so, of HD DVD players. It's, it's easy to upgrade it. You just take a piece of black tape and put it over the HD. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's I, you know I'm I'm, I'm disappointed. I'm actually kind of glad the format war is over. Yeah. And I'm not that upset that I lost it because I knew I was getting buying into this uh, you know a r- risky deal. It might be the losing end of the battle. So I knew that going in, but it, I didn't realize it'd be over so fast. Yep, it's and pretty it, fast. And, well, that's why I'm excited because I can finally buy one. I've been waiting for yeah. one of them to resolve because yeah. I didn't want to buy an invest... HD DVD player. Yeah, well, uh, one of the next gen <laughs> formats. No, no, but like I wanted to know which one was going to win. I didn't want to buy both. Right, right. right. I didn't want to spend the money on a dual format player. Right. Um, so now I'm happy. Speaking of dual things. Apparently, Dual the DualShock things. 3... <laughs> nice segue. <laughs> Sorry, I, that's the only time I've ever done that. It was great. <laughs> it, it was good. It yeah, was good. Thanks. The DualShock 3 is set for a U.S. release on April 15th for the low, low price of... Uh, how, how much time? $54.99. What? $55? For a controller? For a controller. For a controller? <laughs> I'm buying one. I well, mean, isn't that how much the Xbox 360 controller costs? No, I can't. I do don't that. think so. It's not I think $55. Yeah, close. That's what the uh, PS3 uh, DVD remote is. About 50 bucks. No, it's not. I got mine for like 29 bucks. What do I know? Not not much, apparently. So uh, what I but what I'm wondering is are they going to start boxing it with the with the stand with the new console box with the kit? Well, I would hope so. I hope they wouldn't sell the non Dual Shock and then say, "Well, you got to buy a Dual Shock for fifty five dollars." I wouldn't put it past them. Uh, the, see, <laughs> I haven't heard they're going to bundle it. So my assumption is, well, most of our customers we find don't like the Shock, but if you want it, you can go spend fifty five dollars. Or they say they have all these customers who have the old style and they don't want developers to assume they can depend on the new Dual. The, depending on the shockiness, I don't. A lot of people turn it off. I don't. What's up with that? The, the thing that makes me mad about this, and I don't even own a PS three, is why didn't they just do this all? Along? Like everyone knows, well, you know why, the shock, right? No, I mean I know why there's a patent issue. Yeah, but everybody knows that you know the vibration is a desirable feature. You're gonna have it eventually. You're not gonna be able to have a controller that doesn't have well some sort yeah. of vibration or force feedback in this day and age. You're not gonna be able to get away with it. Well, I'm sure it was a bargaining issue. They had to sh- demonstrate to the company that they were willing to do without in order to get some reasonable price for yeah. the patent. It's- because otherwise they were going to have to charge a fortune. I don't know about that. They finally gave in. Well, they did give in, but by going without the dual shock, without the shockiness yeah. for so long, <laughs> without the rumble, the rumble, they yeah. were able to say, "Hey, we are willing to do without." So they got a deal licensing fee because they waited it out. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, the whole thing is is odd to me that they would even ship it without, like Tom says. I think they should have resolved the issue oh, a long time ago. They should have settled when. Uh, Microsoft and Nintendo did. Right. Yeah. Well, but when they were trying to get the PS3 out, they were doing everything they could to get that out. Right. So, I don't know. Poor guys. I feel sorry for them. Yep. Well, they got Blu-ray, so. All right. So, the next news story is Electronic Arts is trying to take over Take-Two, bid for Take-Two, and uh, what's Take-Two's biggest game? Um, That would be Grand Theft Auto. That's right. So, I guess they, uh, they made an offer at about $26 a share. But Take-Two's chief executive, Strauss Zelnick, he rebuffed the proposal, calling it undervalued. So Electronic Arts, apparently, they're still in negotiations. It sounds like they might still go through with this somehow. I don't know what's going on there, but uh, but they're looking to take over Take-Two. So, so there's two things in here for me that are of interest. Um, number one, if Microsoft, if the deal does go through and Microsoft gets them before GTA 4 comes out, 
will GTA 4 become a Xbox exclusive? That's my big question. Is Microsoft Why would it be gonna, an Xbox exclusive? Because Microsoft's going to put the cup. Yes, I'm off the tracks. Well, the other thing is. <laughs> um, the other thing is, okay, so the other thing actually applies here. It, it makes so, some sense. So do you have I'm an sorry. inside scoop? Is Microsoft looking to take Take-Two? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. That is my super secret scoop. No, I'm sorry. But the other thing I've heard is uh, the big deal is whether uh, Take-Two is apparently the biggest maker or the best maker of sports games right. outside of EA. Right, exactly. So if they merge, it's gonna the people who are really going to suffer are the people who like to play sports games. Yep, definitely true. All right, so I guess stay tuned because that's kind of an emerging story. So the last news item isn't really a news item at all. It's kind of more like a trivia contest for you guys. So I I have... You don't have to look at the answers first, do you? No, you don't don't even have the answers because they're only written on mine, Dave. See how I planned that out? I don't know. I just didn't didn't print it on yours. Go for it. All right, so here it is. I'm going to give you some quotes, and I want you guys to tell me, and listeners, please play along at home, what game you think this is that I'm describing? And it may be none of the above. Are like, they, no no game. It may, may not be. It may be okay. no are, game. Are these, <laughs> yeah, maybe no game. Are, they, are all the ones that are valid, are they new, or is some of them classic? Or is that well, too much of a hint? Well, that's for you to decide. Okay, right. here we go, here we go. <clears throat> Alone, you are a member of a street gang who accidentally strayed on a rival turf. Fighting against almost insurmountable odds, you have to use the weapons at your disposal. Three knives, a zip gun, and a lead pipe. With luck, you may even meet up with computer-controlled members of your own gang, one of whom is a martial arts expert. But watch out. Both gangs are vulnerable to randomly roving police cars. This is, of course, Bad Dudes, which is all about the Bad Dudes. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think, Tom? He says Bad Dudes. Um, You know, the description reminds me a little bit of Double Dragon, but I don't think it is because you would have mentioned the uh, two-player aspect of it. Okay. And what do you think, Dan? Yeah, I was going to say Mortal Kombat or something okay. like that. So I'm going to go through them all first, and then we'll I'll t- I'll reveal okay, them at the end. Okay, all right. Tally up the okay, scores. Okay, number, number two, number two. Check your bearings on the strategy chart. Commence firing. Both players possess an equal stockpile of nuclear and thermonuclear weaponry. First player to destroy the opponent's half of the globe wins. This is, of course, the fictional game Global Thermonuclear War from the movie War Games. There's the best a- movie of all time, <laughs> by the way. Best movie ever. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty good, Dave. Thank you. <laughs> no, I played this game. This, okay. Uh, what, well, it was on the um, what's the Half Life Two network? Val Steam. It was on Steam. Steam. It was on Steam Valve. What the hell? Sorry. Dude? Steam. Anyway. <laughs> it was on Steam. Tom. Oh, I can't remember the name of the war, but it's, it, you basically you fight okay. against other people online. So you're, you're pretty confident in that. Launching. Yeah. Okay. What do you? Yeah. What about you, Tom? What do you got? Nothing. You, you, so you, do you think it's a real game? Um, Defcon is the name of the game. Yeah, I think it is, but I don't know what it is. So you think it's Defcon, or you? No. So what'd you say? What do you said that it, global thermal nuclear so is war? Is that a real game, or are you just saying that it's from the? It's a fictional game from the movie. So war you games. don't think it's a real game? I believe people might have ripped it off, but it's, okay. So you think it's probably is a real game? It could be. <laughs> I don't know. All right. So the third one: <clears throat> spit in your mask and tighten up the weight belt. For you and your opponent are diving buddies this time. You descend in the murky, turbulent waters in search of lost treasure of the. Andrea Doria. All right. With only 500 PSA, P- PSI gauge pressure remaining in your tank, you must conserve all your energy at risk of decompression sickness, nitrogen narcosis, and subcutaneous emphysema in a desperate attempt to locate the treasure before your buddy. I think this is fake. <clears throat> I've never heard of a game like this. The only game I can remember that even involved scuba diving was that one where you were a shark and tried to eat the divers. What about remember the new one? Wii game, Endless Ocean? Yeah, but I don't think... Well, is that... Aren't you a fish in that? No, no, you you do scuba in that. You're right. I didn't think that was so much a game as it was sort of an educational you, uh, experience. But you yeah. swim in jungle hunt. 
That's what you think. That's completely not, doesn't apply all right. at all. But so, um, yeah. All right, Chris. Yeah, right. So what are the answers? So the big reveal is that um, these are quotes written from an article in Electronic Games Magazine, May 1982. Wow. They were part of the article, Video Games You'll Never See or We Hope You'll Never See. Wow. <laughs> it was written by Les Paul Robley. <laughs> so Les Paul Robley in 1982 wrote this article. He said, he basically, here's video games we you'll never see, or at least we hope you'll never see. And every single one of these games you thought was actually a real game, except for the last one. Was well, believable. Believable. Yeah. Believable. They're all So it's pretty crazy that in 1982 they thought there would never be a game where you're doing this fighting with lead pipes and games. Oh, and that could have been a number of games. Exactly. Actually, the Scooby game sounds like it might be fun. <laughs> they did, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of crazy that this article, and it was in Electronic Games Magazine, May 1982. These are games that they thought you would never see, or at least if even if, if <laughs> they didn't want they to didn't see. want to see. Which that is crazy. Is awesome. they that all, is a great Great set of questions. They, they all they all sounded very interesting. All right, so uh, all right, well there you go. Not really news, but I thought it'd be fun. All right, on to the next segment, which is the the eight retro I mean, respect. six. I mean seven seven retro. section this time we're talking about the seven cities of gold so unlike previously when we focused on a publishing company or a single console we're going to talk about just this one game and it's a game that we've played recently it's not based on our memory from 20 years ago Um, we're going to talk about the history of it the author the studios and publishers how it was received then and how it holds up today so for this segment, like we said, we chose The Seven Cities of Gold. It's a game that was created by Dan Button uh, of Ozark Software in 1984, and Electronic Arts was responsible for publishing the game. And I guess the reason I wanted to choose this game is because I have a lot of fond memories of playing it when I was a kid. The thing is, I never really fully understood what I was doing. It seemed like, you know, there was it's simple but yet somewhat complex. And being a kid, I didn't quite get what I was doing, but I really liked the exploration aspects of the game, and we're going to get into that quite a bit. Um, but I wanted to really play it again and kind of relive the experience and actually understand what I was doing. So that's why I chose this game as something that we could uh, focus on for this segment. So each of us had a chance to play it on a real system. And what we try to do is kind of distribute the platforms because this was distributed on quite a few different platforms. Uh, Woody and Dave, I guess you guys played on the Commodore 64. My brand new 64. I played it on the Atari 8-bit computer. It was it was uh, one one. Bit of a side nostalgia. It was really fun um, using five and a quarter inch discs again. Some of our <laughs> listeners might not even know what those are, but it was yeah. very weird. Yeah, I love five and a quarter inch discs. Those are like a they're like almost extinct, right? Eventually, there won't be any more five and a quarter inch discs. That's true. I'm I'm actually amazed they still work. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So Tom, he uh, he didn't play on an actual computer. He played on well. Oh, I played it on. I played the Amiga version of the game, but on an emulator because I don't own yeah. an Amiga anymore. I used to, but I sold it long ago. So let's talk a bit about the author, Dan Button. Yeah, so Dan got a degree in industrial engineering in 1974. He started out developing models for the National Science Foundation, mathematical models, that is, 
And in his spare time, he played around with text-based computer games. And his first game uh, was for the Apple II. It was called Wheeler's Dealers in 1978. And like a lot of his games, it was multiplayer, and it allowed for four players to participate in a real-time auction simulation. And uh, he sold the game to Speakeasy Software, which in turn charged $35 uh, for it due to the fact that it included a multiplayer hardware adapter for the Apple II. And it's kind of interesting that this is widely regarded as the first game to be released in a box versus baggy. You know, a lot of the games back then were in baggies. Plastic baggies. And the reason that they had to do that was because it included this uh, adapter that required a box. So apparently um, Wheeler's Dealers was the first box game. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what a lot of people think. The game was a big seller. Tom, how many? What, what? It went on to sell a total of about 50 copies. That's, yeah, that's, that's huge. Pretty, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's pretty lame. I actually went on eBay looking for a copy of this because I, I thought it would be really cool to get that. But one of those 50 copies, Dave? Yeah, one of those. I bet it would go for a lot. If, yeah, you think? <laughs> yeah. I Actually, I bought a copy of Mule. As, oh, as a side oh that's cool. Yeah, it's coming. Have you received it yet? No, I hope it comes. They didn't screw me. Yeah, well, they may have. <laughs> so Dan's next game was a game called Cartels and Cutthroats, which he sold to SSI in 1981. And SSI was a, game, a company that published a lot of strategy games. What was the, they, what did they SSI did simulations. stand for? Strategic Simulations, Inc. Yep. I remember they made a submarine game. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Yep. So this was a game for up to six people, and you each controlled a company that could produce goods and sell them. Which is a theme of actually quite a few of Dan Button's games. And uh, he went on to produce several more games for SSI, including Computer Quarterback and Cytron Masters, which was his first graphics-based game. So like I mentioned earlier, he's, Dan has been referred to commonly as the master of the multiplayer game, since that really that was a focus of the majority of the games he created. So uh, while working at SSI Strategic Simulations Incorporated, Dan met uh, Jim Rushing and Alan Watson, and they, along with uh, Dan's brother Bill, went on to form Ozark Software. So Ozark Software was based out of Little Rock, Arkansas. And the programming team was Dan and Bill Bunton, Jim Rushing, and Alan Watson. Their motto was, play with each other, not with yourself. Which is a great motto, right? Play with each <laughs> other, not with yourself. Yes. Uh, what, what, and, is that, what does that mean? Well, it's, it stemmed <laughs> from the no fact that, there. <laughs> uh, that the games were primarily focused on being multiplayer, yeah. which especially for the time was relatively unusual. Yeah, I mean, most of the games at the time were shooters or whatnot, and they're single-player games. So, yeah, it was pretty rare. And Dan Button was really seen as kind of the driving force behind Ozark Software. So Ozark Software formed a publishing deal with Electronic Arts, and initially Electronic Arts wanted to obtain rights to Dan's earlier game, Cartels and Cutthroats, but, uh, but they weren't able to uh, get those rights from SSI. So Ozark said, no problem. Dan said, no problem. We're going to go on and create an even better game, and that game was Mule. So you want to talk a little bit about Mule, Dave? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a multiplayer. I already talked about this one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, it's basically a multiplayer game, but it's similar to the other games we mentioned earlier where um, goods that are being... So there's a lot of commodities you trade uh, back and forth trying to uh, establish a colony on a new planet. And basically, you're trying to um, um, screw one another by cornering the market. That's exactly right. It's really a lot of fun. It is. It is pretty fun. We'll play it again. But Monopoly in space. So, uh, what about Electronic Arts at the time? Electronic Arts. I, I, everybody obviously knows what big company they are today. They're obviously trying to get a hold of uh, Take Two and acquire them. But back in uh, in the '80s, the early '80s, uh, what was Electronic Arts like? Well, Electronic Arts was started by Trip Hawkins in 82, and initially it was just a publisher and exclusively made games for home computers. 
And uh, the early name for the company was Amazing Software, but some of the employees didn't really like that name. So uh, Tripp started EA with the idea of treating software as an art form, and he wanted to call the developers software artists. So after, I guess, several discussions, they changed the name to, uh, and they agreed upon, Electronic Arts. In addition to treating uh, games as sort of an art form, he wanted to uh, reinforce uh, that by giving developers credit for the games they produced. And the way they did that was, another way they did that was with EA's early packaging, which I showed you guys some, what it looked like earlier. And essentially what it was is it shipped in record album style packaging, which was totally counter to the kind of boxes you would see at the time. And the idea was to promote the developers as rock stars, and really these games as like, you know, albums, like these these kind of rock albums, so. Yeah, and EA would refer to their developers as artists and would give them photo credits in the game and uh, sometimes in advertisements. Like the We See Farther advertisement is the common one where you see a lot of the early EA developers there. There's a photo of them talking, and then they have the different games that they're that they're working on. And there were a lot of historic classic games that were EA games, like a Pinball Construction Set, which is a, an incredible game, um, Archon, Mule, uh, the basketball game One on One, Larry Do you Bird, Doctor J. Oh yeah, that was a great game. Yeah, uh, the Bard's Tale, which was great then, and the and the modern day remake of it is quite good too. Uh, Seven Cities of Gold and Realm of Impossibility. So, uh, how do you guys think? Uh, you know, knowing what Electronic Arts was like then and what they're like now, kind of. How- how they've changed it's kind of crazy because they were started with this whole idea that that the game developers were artists and games were an art form and it seems like now they're just so focused on sequels they're not even really focused on new ips that much i mean i think but i think they just followed the common trend of the industry i mean i remember reading about sierra online used to be like that they'd focus on promoting the the developers or people who wrote it and then all the game companies including if try to make it, the developers be commodities behind the scenes and focus more on their own brand name. Yeah. So well, it, it totally turned around the focus. I have to sort of stick up for them a little because we give them such a hard time on this podcast. <laughs> We're always getting down on EA. and So it's a little unfair because do you really think that they're going to make Madden 07 and go, oh no, let's not make Madden 08? I mean, come no, on. I, mean, I understand you know, They're, they're going to do that. It, to me, it's just it's weird in, because in a way, like when I think of EA, when people say Electronic Arts to me, I still think of the EA in the early '80s, where all of their games were original IPs. Whenever you bought an EA game, you knew this was going to be a great game, and it was just, just even like their packaging. Like I say, it was so unique, it was so Racing Destruction Set. I can just go on and on. Adventure Construction Set. All these games that just were at the time incredible games. And then I think about Electronic Arts today, and my stomach just it's just totally different. Like it does, I don't have the same. It affects your stomach. It does, dude. I, I kind of feel sick. I think like, well, should I buy NCAA 08? Should I buy NCAA 09? You know, it's like I just it's not the same kind of feeling. And maybe it's just a nostalgic thing. But the games at the time to me were so unique and original. And you just I don't get that and maybe it's because the industry has just changed and electronic arts obviously changed along with them but to me they were a much different company back then all right so where did the idea for seven cities of gold come from well apparently dan actually wanted to do civilization which is interesting because it does feel to me a little bit like civilization well, the, the, we want to do the avalon hill board game civilization yeah, yeah. which i played and is a great game board game but apparently the other members of the team didn't want to do it so they settled on doing a more exploration game I guess Dan showed them another board game uh, by Avalon Hill called Conquistador. 
I guess it was also by a company called SPI. Do you know the difference between SPI and Avalon Hill? Or? I don't, know. Yeah, I don't know either. But it, in the Wikipedia entry, it was saying that there was two similar versions of the game, and Dan had played them both, but whatever. So they decided to create a game kind of based on this board game. So uh, at, around the same time, Dan was backpacking in Arkansas, and he got lost. And he said it was a very visceral feeling of being lost in the woods. He wanted to capture a similar feeling but apply it to discovering the new world. So they kind of chose this whole gameplay concept for Seven Cities of Gold, where you go out and you sail and you try to find the new world. Uh, he also wanted to incorporate uh, dif- the difficulty in communicating with natives. You know, the fact that they lack a common uh, shared culture. And language. And, and language. Presented yeah. problems for, like, the early explorers. So that's something he also wanted to do in the Seven Cities of Gold. So what is the Seven Cities of Gold game? What's, what is it, what's it all about? Well, basically, you are in the role of a explorer for Spain in the late 15th century, and you're setting sail to go and explore the new world. And you're going to have to interact with the natives, um, trade, and obtain gold and bring something back to please the Spanish court. And uh, You start the game uh, given an exploration fleet with uh, four ships, 100 men, and some trade goods. And essentially there are three different views in the game. And you start in the city view. So this is like your home base, and it's in Spain, and you know, you've got this sort of view of a street, and you've got a palace and a pub and a place where you can buy equipment. But it's kind of a two-dimensional view, yeah, right? Yeah, like like it's, it's like, like a side view. You can see your little yeah. guy walking back and forth in front yeah, of these there's buildings. There's one road to go side on, scroller. and there's yeah. about four buildings you can go into. Yeah, there's actually three. There's a palace, an outfitters, and a pub. <laughs> so uh, I, In your home. Isn't it right? No. Palace, Outfitters, and okay. Pub. Actually, there's four, because you can also... No, there's only three. Isn't that right? Palace? I can't remember. Yeah, it's Palace, Outfitters, and Pub. No, right. and your, no you, can go, you, in, save, you can go though? into your home. You save at the pub, you go into your home, and you can see statistics on Oh, how okay, you're right. That's right. Yeah. Oh, there you go. And then you can go onto the ship. There you go, Dave. And then the ship. That's right, <laughs> the, the ship. ship. But that's not a place. That's not a place, but you enter it the same way you do the other. There's a docks, whereas where you enter. Okay, so four buildings. (laughs) So, so, so there's this place called the palace, and you go there um, once you've done some exploring, and the court will give you uh, further gold based on what you've kind of done, and they'll also give you a ranking in the game. The game itself starts in the year 1492, and you can basically continue to explore infinitely, but the Spanish court will uh, stop giving you rankings after 1540. And the lowest ranking in the game, the game, the ranking you start out with is poor, and the highest is Viceroy. <laughs> to achieve the highest ranking, uh, you must receive more than fi- a 50% rating by the year 1540. So at the Outfitters, you can purchase items, new ships, men, goods, and food. There's really only a few types of items, though. It reminded me at the beginning a little bit of Oregon Trail, where you sort right. of decide what to put yeah. in your wagon. But really... But you can always go back and redo your wagon. Yeah, you can go back. But the thing is that the... All the ingredients have been boiled down to these very few types of items. There's ships, which transports you. There's men, which you use for exploring and fighting. Goods, which you use for trading. And food, which keeps your party alive. Right. And the pub, like what you mentioned earlier, is kind of where you save or load your game. And during the game, you'll frequently return to your home base to appear in front of the court to purchase these additional supplies. So just to summarize, the city view in Spain, you have these four buildings plus a ship... And it's a two-dimensional type view. Um, and once you've kind of decided, I've outfitted my my crew, and I, I know how many men I have, and how many ships I have, and goods and food, then you kind of descend on your explorations, and that's when it transitions to more of the map view. 
and it's kind of, and you're sailing in the water. You you leave port. You don't actually see your port once you're in the water, but then you start sailing west. Right. Or any yeah, any or any direction you want. Yep. But west is where land is. So it transitions from this kind of two-dimensional side-scroller view to a top-down, high-level view of a map, of a top-down map. And the map itself takes up a fairly small square portion in the center of the screen. And when you say small, I mean, this is really, really <laughs> small. It felt to me well, like, like it was about 10, 10 pixels squares. wide. Yeah, yeah. well, it's I like mean, 10 tiles. And I, 10 I never, pixels? I, I don't think it's 10 pixels. Well, 10, 10 tiles. It felt really tiny. And it's, it's a small view of the ocean. It makes, it makes the ocean seem much bigger. The thing that's funny is, of course, you know, when I play this as a kid, this didn't bother me at all. I didn't have these high expectations, like gigantic high-resolution graphics. But, to, you know, to play it today, it almost drove me insane to have this, like, tiny, tiny little map where you couldn't see very far. See, I thought it was an interesting challenge. I was like, ooh. I mean, it does is, make it, yeah. uh, on the other hand, it does make it more mysterious. It makes you feel like you don't know what's coming up. Exactly. Uh, there's some good things about it, but it's it's kind of funny looking. So what is, what is your ship, actually? What, you know, what, 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 it looks like an arrow, I think. I think it's supposed, is it a compass? What is it supposed to be? Yeah, it doesn't look like a ship. It has a direction. It definitely, when you change direction, it points a different way. Yeah. So, you know, what do you can do with the, with the graphics? It's an abstract re- representation yeah. of your party. So, surrounding this small square, much larger than 10 pixels. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe 15. <laughs> it's way I bigger than that. bigger than 10 pixels. Oh. Well, it okay, no, the, the whole snap, yeah. Tiles. Tiles. Yeah, okay, so whatever. So, there's status information. <laughs> so, surrounding that, there's status information. You have men, food, goods, and gold. And you're also informed of the current month and year. And again, 1540 is, is the end of the status portion. So you're kind of always looking at to see how far, how much time do I have left, you know, to keep exploring. Now, the map portion in the center scrolls in the direction that you push a joystick. So as you move around, you know, this, this portion scrolls uh, as you try to discover new worlds. Uh, and when you're sailing, it constantly updates you with the speed and depth of the water. And you can also run into storms while you're sailing. Yeah, I got chased by them a bunch of times. Now, like- I wasn't sure about this, but I kind of developed the feeling that there was some sort of realistic wind patterns to it, that it was trying to model the trade winds or something, because depending on your latitude, Probably, the yeah. winds w- seem to be different. Oh, yeah. Well, you definitely... I, I, I always found when you, you go straight west, but you would end up a long way south of where your home base was. Mm-hmm. I'd always have to travel north and east right. to go home. Hmm. Interesting. Know. So uh, during the game, you also have the option to go to this view map, uh, which displays a very high-level, top-down view of the portions of the world you have discovered, um, and also presents your latitude, which is important. You kind of need to keep track of your latitude to know how to get back to your your home base. And also to track... I know a lot of people, when uh, they play this, they actually map out everywhere they've been. Yeah. So... It's kind of kind of cool that you have that information. I mean, if you haven't played the game, it's important to know that like when you're out at sea, you're out at sea. You don't know have any idea. <laughs> yeah, you where can you just are. keep pushing. Yeah. Like, you're, and that's actually pretty realistic because all they had was yeah, knew, yeah. they knew the latitude, they didn't know the longitude. So once you actually do well, if you find land, then you yeah. go to this the it's still this kind of map view with this small square in the in the middle. Um, but once you get there, you have the option to drop stuff off. That's that, literally what they call it on they screen. They call it is drop stuff. Drop off. stuff off. Now that's I kind of found that terminology 
odd. I like, found it very confusing too because drop stuff <laughs> off sounds to me like you're going to drop the stuff off and leave it behind <laughs> yeah. while you continue on. Yeah, but, but it's actually just the opposite. Drop stuff off means you're dropping off yourself <laughs> in an exploration You're party. part of the stuff that's being dropped yeah, off. Yeah, you're being dropped <laughs> off. Yeah. Well, it depends. If you're getting off the boat, that's what it means. But you could also just randomly on land decide to drop stuff off and you create a cache <laughs> that's of true. items. Yeah, but it's a confusing way yes, of putting it. Drop stuff. I don't it, usually think of when. I guess maybe you, you think know, of like dropping stuff off is a trip to the bathroom. Right. It, <laughs> yeah. Okay. But but here's what I'm saying. It's like if I'm dropping people off, I wouldn't be like. So I went to the store and dropped some stuff off, which includes my wife. Like I wouldn't refer to it that way. You know what I mean? So like it's just kind of a weird way to refer to dropping people off. But anyway, whatever. So you can drop off men, food, goods, etc., and, and you can go exploring with them. And, and once, you, once interestingly, you, the food is measured in how many weeks worth of food it is. It's right. not measured in like you know in quantity pounds or anything. So depending on how many people in your party, but isn't that messed your, up? Your food <laughs> will go up or down, which is also very confusing at first. Yeah. Because so you, you think you have like 10 units of food and then you add some more men to your party and yeah. the food drops. Well, here's you, the other you problem. You put like one right. and you have a thousand pieces of food. <laughs> here's the problem. Here's the problem. Yeah. It's like when you're putting people, but later you put people back on the ship. Right. So oh, like yeah. I put my men on first and then I start putting the food and it it's like taking forever. forever. So then right. I put There's some men back so it goes faster. So then right. Exactly. You have to do the same thing. You got to leave, you got to do the food and the goods <laughs> transfer first yeah. and then transfer the men. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting because it's like this relative <laughs> measure of food. It's very strange. But I guess it does make sense in a way because you wouldn't want to have to do the math in your head to try to figure out, well, how many food do I need for, you know, right. 17 men or something. Yeah. Once you understand it, it's it, fine. It, it, yeah, it's yeah, fine. It's, but it it's was initially confusing. Yeah. So once you actually do, again, find land, then you drop stuff off, including your men. And you. Um, and you. <laughs> then you can start exploring on foot. And you can just start. You can start to discover different aspects of the place you're exploring. And this is where it gets fun, really. Yeah, yeah. You can discover the mouths of rivers, and I guess that information is useful to the Spanish court, and that actually help to. Uh, they give you points for that and money. Yeah, yeah. Depending Increase how your many mouths and how many sources of rivers you find, how many gold mines you find. Yeah. So the main activity, I guess, on land is to interact with the natives. Right. Well, wait. Before we get to that, though. Moving around on land really depends on the terrain. Yeah. And so what you find is if you can follow the course of a river, you move way faster yeah. than if you're out like hacking through the jungle, which was realistic at the time, very, right. very realistic. So you got to, especially because you only have food for a limited amount of time, you want to maximize your progress on land. So it really pays to follow those rivers. And it helps you find your ship again, too. Exactly. Yeah. That's it. I kept following the rivers the last time we were planning. Remember that? Anyway. Falling in the rivers? Yeah. No. <laughs> Following the rivers. That was a tact I took. But, but so eventually you are going to find the natives. You're going to find the natives. And in the game you discover many different types of native organizations. So there's like, uh, and economies. There are tribal, chiefdom, city-state, empire organizations. And the economies differ as well. It includes poor and rich hunter-gatherer, agriculture, and advanced agriculture. So when you actually get to one of these native communities, the game switches to yet another view, which is the village view. And this is like a zoomed-in view of the village, and you get the same sort of small square map that you get when you're exploring. And you kind of move around the village, and you see native people... Basically and, use stick figures. Yeah, like, but, but it zooms in. So it's still using that small area, but it zooms into a much higher right. scale, right? Well, the, yeah, right. 
the more it's more like the city zooms gets bigger. Right. You're looking at a different uh, scale of things. So you see yourself as like a little stick figure walking around, and you see the natives as these little stick figures walking around. And so what you learn early on is that if you run into a, a native. That means you just killed you it. Killed it. <laughs> right. So, so you're like, trying to or not, or had your knife out. Yeah. Or not. So basically, if you just if you just bump into them, that's <laughs> combat. It's like your small smallpox got them. No, it's just combat. I think you actually, yeah, you're, you're stabbing with your sword. Yeah, that's, I understand. Yeah, but it's more like it feels like smallpox. At first, it's hard to know what what it is you're supposed to do. Yeah. Especially if, like me, you don't read the instructions. <laughs> yeah. and, so, yeah. and so you wind up like walking into some people and. You know, and that was combat, and you kill them, and then everyone attacks you. Yeah, after you run into two or three, then they all come after you, and you got to fight till the end. And so, then, then you read the instructions, and then you read the instructions like, oh, I wasn't supposed to just like walk into everybody because that's killing them, and then they kill you. Okay. So the point is that um, in these villages, you kind of, actually there's a decision, right? I could just go in and start killing them because I have enough men. I could conquer them, take their gold. And, which you know, was the easy and, way. Which is the easy way. It's not that easy. I mean, you lose a lot of men. Lose men. But you, I, I never lost a lot of men. <laughs> They're pretty weak. These I bring natives. a big party, though. It also depends on what type of uh, city you discover. Of yeah. course, right. if it's like a really small village with a few people, it's easy to conquer. So there's right. a sort of luck element to like what, where do you discover first? The other tact you can take is you, in the center of the village is the chieftain, and you can attempt to peacefully trade with him. And if done right, and I guess with some luck, you can turn the village into a mission. Did you get any of you guys do that? I did the trading. I never got it turned into a mission, though. Same, same. I did. I did finally trade, and it is so you, frustrating. You can give moving, gifts, trying to get to then, the chief without touching any. So, of the so what's the yeah. amaze the natives? You guys, you the, did that. Yeah, amaze the natives. You sort of. Uh, Put on this little display, and <laughs> <laughs> who knows what that? Entails. Who knows what that exactly means? But your your sort of flashes, but essentially metal. They stop moving, so they you stop, don't you, yeah. you don't touch them and kill them. Well, they right? even like right. run away a few. Sometimes they step back. Tiles. Yeah, step exactly. Back. They step back. Yeah, but you can only do it once. It seemed like at least yeah. it only once, per, once per village. I yeah. think. Yeah. I mean, once they've seen how amazing you are, it <laughs> right. doesn't. So you, so you got to do it and then get to the chief as fast as possible. In, in my head, I kind of pictured that what it, what native was is like you pull out a banjo and like play some really good riff or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bic lighter. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Bic lighter. I, 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 Look at this. Zippo. Magic. Yeah, whip out a Zippo. <laughs> <laughs> So well, they didn't uh, have Zippos back then. What would they have had? They probably had something cool. Gunpowder, flash some, yeah, flash gun some gunpowder, gunpowder. Uh, glass, you know. But if you the don't, wheel. <laughs> if you don't peacefully trade with them, um, you and you kill them and take all the resources, you can ultimately turn the village into a fort. So it's either you turn into a mission or you turn into a fort or you do nothing and you just pillage. So it's kind of what you can do. Um, and wh- whatever route you want to take, that's entirely up to you. And that's kind of the crux of the game for me. It's like. Do you decide to kill and plunder, or do you attempt to make peace and set up these missions to allow you to explore longer without returning to your home base? And the interesting thing is how, I guess, reading a lot of what uh, Dan Button said is how historically accurate this decision-making process is. Because uh, when people obviously were discovering the new world, they had the language barriers. It was difficult to interact with these people. And for a lot of them, I guess it was easier just to kill them than to try to establish trade and to try to develop a common language. Right. One of the things that struck me while I was playing this game is that some of the same things that make the game a little bit frustrating totally would have made the real thing frustrating too. Exactly. Because you would have been like, well, I don't know where anything is here. I don't know yeah. what I'm supposed to do. I don't know like, yeah. who, you know, who am I supposed to go talk to. It, yeah. it, it would have been the same in real life, right? Yeah, exactly. And if you, uh, 
I guess if you did, you ever get this message? If you continually conquer villages, you'll receive a message from the king stating, "Don't treat the natives so badly, but keep the gold coming." <laughs> and uh, Dan Button said that that double standard is actually pretty historically accurate. I'm sure it is too. It makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. So, what is the best approach? So, there is a quote from Dan Button. Oh, the quote says, "The peaceful approach really works the best." I've not used a totally depraved approach in one. You've got to have some friends somewhere. If something goes wrong, you need a friendly mission where you can go back to and not have to worry about an insurrection or something. A place you can return to and know that there will be food, for example. You need a series of these relatively safe places, even if you're going on a conquest mission. So, I mean, that's kind of the approach I tried to take, but again, I had trouble setting up the missions. But you, you never got a mission set up No, either. I didn't get yeah. one set up either. Frustrating. <laughs> I really wanted a mission. I, I couldn't get to have him. So how do you win this game? Yeah. Yeah, how do you win? You get a high score? What's going on? What are you doing? Well, the interesting thing about Seven Cities of Gold is there really isn't a winning. Right. It's really a game about discovery, interactions. I mean, you can get a rating. You can get a better or worse rating. But there's no point in the game where it says you've won. And that's really counter to the majority of games at that time. Or probably, I guess, even games today, right? Yeah. So when playing the game, most people, I guess, attempt to discover as much of the new world as possible. That's pretty much what I did. And they try to up their rating, you know, with the court. The other thing that's really kind of interesting about Seven Cities of Gold is... It's supplied with a historically accurate map, so the new world is mapped just as it is, right? Right. But it also contained a map generation engine that was supposed to produce accurate maps in terms of how the features are generated, rivers, mountains, etc. Geologically correct. Geologically correct. So it allows really for unlimited replayability, because you can just have it generate a new map and then you go discover again. So you don't necessarily know where everything's going to be. And uh, even, you know, regardless of whether you use the original historical map or a dynamic one, one of the things about the game for the time is that just having a map that big that you could explore for hours and hours was quite an achievement. So, like I said, we've mentioned a couple times there were interviews with Dan Button. So here's some of the things Dan had to say about the game. He said that one of the biggest challenges was fitting all the graphical elements into little more than 32K. 32K? 32K. So to accomplish it, they had to come up with a scheme for compressing data and spooling it from the floppy. Now, to me, when you mention the how small the area is in the middle, I'm guessing that has <laughs> something to do with the fact that with this Nintendo, is... Yeah, technology. Yeah. If, if you yeah. think about it, in terms of loading, did you guys ever see a loading screen? during no, one of, no. Only when it would change from like the city to the, right. the ocean. It was all continuous basically yeah, which is pretty interesting because you hear about a lot of games today and they're like what's what's your biggest accomplishment well there's no loading times there's no loading right. streams it well this they were doing it back then they <laughs> only had 32k to work with and that's probably why you got that small square yeah i think our company's logo is bigger than 32k <laughs> definitely true so how was the game received back then well, it sold over a hundred thousand copies which back then was a lot that was a lot of yeah a lot for- of units it won the Strategy Game of the Year Award from Computer Gaming World's 1985 Reader Poll. It also received a SBA Gold Disc for the num- and a number of other minor awards. So back in, in the 80s, what was your opinion of the game? Did you guys play it back then at all? Yeah, I remember playing this on the Apple II, I think. And uh, yeah, I, I liked it a lot. I remember really liking it and, and being impressed with that sort of open-ended exploration. Yeah, and I, I totally agree with that because I enjoyed playing it as a kid as well. Like I say, I didn't really understand... 100% what I was doing, but I really liked the exploration aspect because it kind of gave me a break from a lot of the mindless kind of shooting and fighting games that were really predominant at the time. Now, did you not know what you were doing because you didn't have the manual or you're just a kid? I had the manual. I just, yeah, I didn't spend the time to really learn how yeah. to play the game. So what, how do you guys think the game holds up today? 
Well, I, I had fun playing it for what it was worth, and I could tell that for the technology for the time would have been incredible. I, I did enjoy playing it. So, what'd you think, Dave? What I think? Well, I, 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 it was fun to look back on. It wasn't. I think um, if if you had to compare it to games I'd play today, there's games I would play today more than that. That were made back in the eighties. Yeah. Well, yeah. this game is specifically. I would. I would. Uh, well, there's. I obviously I'm all into mule, so I, I'd still play that. Right. Um, I guess I had a problem with the, the manual was purposely sparse. I mean, I think that was a decision they made, and it kind of made it so you had you didn't know what you were getting into. You kind of had to figure it out. So it was, kind of gives you uh, this feeling of, of exploration and figuring stuff out. But it also, I think it might, might be a little bit of a cop out. What like it doesn't no, nothing doesn't really describe what you need to do to get a mission going. Right. Um, but isn't that? I mean, to me, that's kind of the point of the game. Uh, yeah. If you read interviews with Dan Button. He says the whole point is that if you, it's not like when you went exploring to find the new world, you had instructions about. Right. Oh, by the way, if you see a native, here's the way you set up a mission. <laughs> and I think that's kind of they why they said they left it sparse was that they wanted you to experience what it was like to explore sure. and try to find the new world. Sure, that that's fine. You can you can do that. I I found it frustrating though. As a as a so gamer. so as an explorer, would you have found it frustrating? Probably, maybe? yeah. <laughs> so sure, it's realistic. So, yeah, there you go. But I, I bought a game to to, to uh, spend time twinning with the yeah. joystick. You know what I mean? Yeah, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, if you, I think if you look beyond beyond the graphics, it does hold up fairly well, at least for me, uh, because again, the game has these simple controls and resource management. It's fairly simple, but. Understanding how to play it and figuring out how to achieve success is very complex. I found that interesting. Like, how do I set up missions? Or do I go ahead and conquer these people? What is the right approach? And the fact that the world generator, like it can generate all these new worlds, that leads to infinite replayability, which to me is a key of any game. You know, you don't, you don't want it just to just be a one-trick pony. And this game isn't that. I mean, you can always generate new worlds and, and re-explore. And a lot of, you know, I've read articles, and I know Dave mentioned it as well, although he didn't mention it today, uh, just at work when we've talked about it, that the interactions with the natives seem... Awkward. Right, because they're just running into you. It's, it seems it, a little bit too easy to kill natives, right. especially when that's not what I was trying to do. Yeah. And I understand that, but in my, like, I, the way I take it is I think that's metaphorical, more than a one-to-one mapping on sure. reality. It's like, I don't think that, if you look at that, you would think, wow, that's weird, the guy just walks around and people are... You're running into them and dying. Well, it's definitely yeah. a metaphor because yeah. as you do it, you watch and the men in your party, the number goes down. So it's clearly right. representing a many person to many person right. battle. And the fact that it's difficult to move around with not hitting them, I think that's a metaphor for it's. It was difficult to establish trade without you know fighting without, without like, yeah. setting them off, right? Setting exactly. off the conflict. Yeah. So, so while yeah, graphically, it's not like it's you know reality based. I think the point that it's trying to get across works. Like you have to step back and just kind of let it. Sure. Yeah. What, what I think is really interesting is, is for instance, they have this thing where if you uh, if you are if you do kill a lot of natives, eventually all the other villages will get word of your yeah exactly of your evil doings yeah. And I realized as a programmer, that's basically that's sitting in some kind of integer somewhere in the program. Integer. Probably just a bit, right? Probably. Well, it's probably it's probably <laughs> it's a counter. It has to be some counter. kind of counter. How many times you've been yeah. a little butt? Yeah. These two oh, yeah, that's true. And uh, it's not like they're actually keeping track of all these cities. Right. But as this encounter goes up, you're going to have more and more uh, resistance as you enter new cities. Yeah. And uh, and that it's it's, it's simulating um it's, it's simulating something that's happening that they want to simulate in the real that's happening in these uh, villages. But 
It's a very simple programming right. thing. I mean, it has to be. I think all of the that is kind of weird about it, isn't it? It's like they're able to kind of simulate all these real world things, but you know that the code is very is simple. very simple. And the right. fact that these uh, these sprites are going towards you and you're accidentally killing them—that's just right. a very simple code, right? Yeah. And but it's simulating, right? It's being, simulating being bad. The natives, where you hit. yeah. And I thought that was interesting. And that's yeah. what they had to do for games. Then. Yeah. So you have anything else to add to that, Tom? Well, for me, I think the game didn't hold up as much today as I would have liked it to. Yeah. I remember how much I liked it as a kid. I certainly appreciate today what an achievement it was for the time and, and how cool it was. I found it a little difficult to play today just because of you know, the graphics not being good by today's standards. Basically, the open world game is, and the exploration type of game is something that is so much better now. Like, if right. you look at Oblivion or Just Cause or games yeah. like that, that it's very hard for that uh, for a classic game like this to compete in that realm. Right. Whereas, on the other hand, if I look at other things, like, I still enjoy playing Asteroids and Centipede and, and you know, text-based games like Zork. Yeah. Like, text never really grows old. Like, a yeah. good... Like, you know, that's why we still read books, right? Yeah. But the sort of graphical world exploring is a little harder to pull off when you bring that game into today, I think. For me, one thing that was very odd playing this game is it reminded me so much of the game Pirates, um, oh, which yeah. I loved as a kid. I played Pirates all the time. Um, and it, and it, was, it was hard for me because I kept thinking, wow, this game is just, you know, it's a ripoff of Pirates. But then I thought, no, clearly this game came first and so I always have to think about it. but like all the menus even like that that drop off menu there's a menu just like that in Pirates where yep. you're transferring goods from ship to ship and, and Pirates was much more advanced but this was a clear you know precursor to it so it was very I don't know a sense of deja vu or n- yep. nostalgia so that, that definitely colored my experience but that's part of what I found interesting was I was like this game's a lot like a, a an archaic ver- or prehistoric version of pirates, and it was it was very interesting. Well, that kind of shows that. maybe how influential the game. Yes, was, right? yes, absolutely, absolutely. Well, it's definitely influential. If like civilization, I think a lot of that, right, based on right. it too. But so the the one thing I would I'd say, Tom, that is interesting to me is like I find that I can't play emulated games very well. Like I can't play games in emulators. But if you give me the real computer mm-hmm. with the real disk drive. With the real, you know, boot up screen and stuff, again. it makes yeah. it feel like yeah. I don't have expectations when I'm playing on my Commodore 64 that I'm going to see Oblivion style graphics. But you're playing <laughs> it on a computer That's true. that can yeah. render those graphics. So I'm just wondering, does that somehow like I never ha- like when I was playing Mule with Dave today? It's exactly what I expected it to be, you know, because right. No, you you have a point, and it's it's interesting that I'm the only one playing on an emulator, and I'm the only one who it didn't really live up to the expectations I, for. Yeah, and it was there was a lot of that the experience of playing on the actual Commodore. For example, when you're wandering around the map, and then you hear the floppy drive start yeah, exactly. loading, it was <laughs> the weirdest <laughs> feeling. So that gives you that to hear those sounds. Right? Yeah, very much so. It was very much like being you know 12 years old again, and, yeah, and hearing yeah. that on the computer, yeah, the cool. the disk drive spinning up and. It was, oh, it was very strange. So I have some Commodores if you want to buy one. <laughs> <laughs> what are you selling them for, Chris? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Do you Sell have any power supplies? I do have some power <laughs> supplies. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit more about uh, Dan Button. Because after he created uh, Heart of Africa and Seven Seas of Gold, he went on to create several other multiplayer games, uh, including Robot Rascals, Modem Wars, Command HQ, and Global Conquest. Didn't you play some of those, Dave? I played Global Conquest. At least I think I, well, that was one of the games I bought for the PC and then never got playing. I really wanted to uh, play it, uh, multiplayer, never 
couldn't find any friends to play with me. So and, I, and the interesting part about those games is that the majority of those were modem based, and that mm-hmm. was kind of before like modem games were popular. So Dan was really kind of pushing the mm-hmm. envelope and creating these modem based multiplayer games. I know a lot of those games are you know very similar to uh, strategy games that we have today. So one thing that we didn't mention earlier, um, and probably a lot of listeners already know this and wonder yeah. why we're calling Dan Button Dan. Yeah, so go ahead, Tom, and why don't you talk about that? In November 1992, uh, Dan actually became Danny. Uh, Actually, you know, had a a sex change. And the interesting thing is, I met Danny at a conference in California in the early 90s, and I only knew, at least face-to-face, I only knew that person as Danny and only knew her as a female, at least face-to-face. I knew the history of it, but uh, that was my only interaction with her. So what what conference was this, Tom? I think I'm trying to remember what it was because it was a long time ago. I think it was Game Design, Game Developers Conference. Game Developers Conference. Yeah, I think that's what it was. Yeah, so that's the one that just happened. Actually, the Game Developers still Conference. Going they on. still have it. That's so. great. Yeah, and uh, so she gave a, a talk there, and uh, obviously still cared a lot about games and wanting people to succeed in the game industry and wanting people to make great multiplayer games that would sort of bring people together. I just sort of felt that she was a really cool person, really nice. Yeah, so we, we chose to refer to him as Dan Button during the previous segment because when he produced Seven Seas Gold, he was a, a man, right? So right. that was kind of the choice there, but... Even stuff that we read, like later, um, Danny said that she almost regretted uh, having the uh, reassignment Sexual surgery. Sexual reassignment surgery. Yeah. yeah. So um, that's not great. But um, the other thing that she mentioned was that she wasn't as good a programmer as Dan, which is kind of interesting because it's still the same person, right? So how does how does that you work? Would, you would guess that the hormones probably affects your the way you. You think of things, or she might just be old, like, like we are. And, <laughs> yeah, it, it might have had less to do with the change than just growing, you know, growing Getting older. <laughs> so, uh, like Danny, the rest of us, Danny Buttonberry, um, as she changed her name. Uh, I, but apparently, her family didn't support her her sex change, and so right. she chose a new last name. And then in 1998, uh, she died from lung cancer, presumably from heavy smoking. We're not. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. what they Assu- say. Assuming, yeah, yeah. And recently, Danny was posthumously inducted into the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences Hall of Fame. And since she had, she was deceased, uh, Sid Meier actually accepted the award for, uh, for Danny Bunn. I mean, she had a great career of multiplayer games, and I think in a lot of ways... So she's, she's a well-known figure. One of the titans of the industry. Yeah, so she was really one of the titans of the industry and really set forth really a multiplayer game since that was kind of the emphasis of all their games, kind of set that going forward. And it's a lot of what we see today. I mean, it's kind of driven from some of the early origins of the games that she created. Well, I really have a lot of respect for that because it's always the multiplayer aspects of gaming is always what I'm most interested in today. And very rarely do I enjoy the single player games. All right, well, that does it for episode number 18 of Twitch Asylum Video Game Radio. And keep listening because we're going to go to daily podcasts and our next giveaway is going to be a new car. <laughs> Actually, no, that, that isn't true. But uh, if you do go to the forums, you could sign up to win a copy of... King of Kong. The King of Kong. So, uh, yeah, again, go. there will be a stickied thread that you can go and post a reply to to get in that throng. So, until next time, see ya. <laughs>
Freddy at the ready. <laughs> it's time for news you can use. Okay, you say that in a, in a second here. When Tom's done. Okay, go. It's time for news you can use. All right, news! Dave, it's too loud. Start over. <laughs> what do you do? Great. It's time for news you can use. Okay, what's, what's first in the news agenda, Chris? All right, Tom, what's going on? Something about Sony. Something about Sony. So Phil Harrison stepped down as Sony's president to leave for Atari. <laughs> so, yeah, this is kind of the big uh, big news that's going on right now. The head of Sony's in-house game studio and one of its longest-serving executives, Phil Harrison, is going to resign from the company at the end of February. Actually, I think he has he already resigned. Maybe. I don't know. I think he already did a couple days ago. Anyway, the re- let's start this over. All right. We're doing fine. Here you go. All right. It's time for news you can use. All right, news. What's first on the agenda, Chris? All right, Tom, what's up? Well, Phil Harrison steps down as Sony's president, leaving for where? Uh, Atari? <laughs> yeah, so this is the big news story right now. I guess uh, Phil Harrison's left Sony. He was uh, their in-house games... No. <laughs> <laughs> let's start again with Sony. He All was right. their game studio. Okay, let's just start again. <laughs> what are you kidding again? It's time for news you can use. <laughs> or news. Do it again, dude. Yeah, all right. Let's, okay. let's let's start with another. Let's start with the next story. No, no, we're on a roll now. We can do it. There you go. It's time for news you can use. Okay, Chris. So what's our first agenda? I don't know, Tom. What's going on? Well, Phil Harrison has stepped down as Sony's president, and he's leaving for where? Atari. Well, this is kind of the big news story right now. <laughs> I told you we can't do this story. Why? What's so wrong with this story? Okay, we just need to stop. What the hell is this? What's so easy about this? <laughs> it's not that funny. Okay. It's really not that funny. Okay, let's start again. You sure you're recording? Yeah, I'm recording. Go. Go, Woody. It's time for news you can use. All right, what's, what's first on the agenda, Chris? I don't know, Tom. What's going on? Well, Phil Harrison, the head of Sony's in-house game studio, has stepped down... And is leaving for somewhere, maybe Atari, is that right? Can that be right? <laughs> okay, we'll have to do it one more time. Why? Why? What was wrong with that? Just, just no, stop. Like, just just, just edit this out. No, we'll do it one more time. We'll just crack up again. I'm not going to crack up this time. Go, Woody. All right, it's time for news you can use. And the lead story <laughs> is that Phil Harrison is stepping down from Sony. Phil yeah, he's leaving for Atari, apparently. Let's do it one more time. Phil Hicks. Phil Hicks. Harrison, dude. What the hell? Phil Harrison. I said Phil Harrison. Said Phil Hicks. Hicks. I said Phil Harrison. Yeah. All right, let's start over one more time. <clears throat> it's time for news you can use. All right, Chris, what's first on the agenda for the newsreel? I don't know, Tom. What's going on? Well, Phil Harrison has stepped down as Sony's president... And Chris, what is wrong with you? <laughs> All right, it's not this funny. Is, this, is, okay, this is a final time. This final time. I'm not gonna laugh this time. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> it's not that funny. Okay, I'm fine. Good too. It's time for news you can use, and the lead story is about HD DVD. It's gone. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's try it one more time. <laughs> Why are you laughing, Tom? It's not funny. I wasn't laughing. 
Alright. This is the final time, Woody. <laughs> it's not. No way. No way. You got Alright, let's go. Let's can do we, it. Can we skip the whole Phil Harrison? Okay, let's go. Let's do it. No, you can't say that. Just say it. Just say can... George Harrison. <laughs> we'll do it this time, this time. Okay. Right. <clears throat> I've lost my voice, so I'm going to have to go. It's time for news you can use. Alright, so what's the first of the newsreel, Chris? I don't know, Tom. What's going on? Well, Phil Harrison has stepped down as president of Sony. 